Yo, what is up, guys and gals? Man, this uh, is the last of the the Land Air Show series. This episode is Mr. Tom Noonan. Tom was actually um on day two, if I remember right. He was our opening guest. We actually had him and Bill Booth back to back. We uh hung out with Tom. Went and did the tour of UPT and then hung out with Bill. So we had a pretty phenomenal day. Tom's a real prolific guy. He is a uh, very outspoken guy, and I mean that in a great way, in the fun way, not in, in the obnoxious version. Tom has a lot of great life experiences and a lot of great stories, and he is great at sharing them. Tom has jumped on all seven continents. He has done a lot of other really cool things, and he even primed the uh, pump just a little bit for some of the Bill Booth conversations. You uh, have probably already listened to Bill Booth. If you haven't, go back, search our library, go to whatever podcast app you're using and look for the Bill Booth episodes because uh, his stories are phenomenal. Enjoyed uh, hanging out with Tom, but man, the Deland Air Show series was was just a fucking whirlwind, man. It, it, it blows my mind that I had the chance to hang out with my buddy Nick and with Justin Grubbs. And that we got to sit and chill with John LeBlanc, Bill Booth, Tom Noonan, Brad Cole, Kristen Johnson. Man, I'm going to run out of uh, memory. I'm I'm already running out of names. Sorry if I forgot you. But what a privilege and an honor. And honestly, none of it would be possible without you guys and gals. Number one, y'all make the show. You guys and gals listen to the show. Nick and I will stand by our ways and stand by our words. If we stop having fun, we will stop producing the show. Um, we love that you listen to it, but we'll never really use that as a judgment of, of us doing it. We want to make sure we're having a good time, and it seems to be a winning formula for us. But without you guys downloading, without you guys listening, we really couldn't be doing all of this. And to top it off, the Deland Air Show series was brought to you by a bunch of our friends who listen to the show. You know who you are. It was so cool that so many people supported us. We had a, a buddy who donated some free, frequent flyer miles to airline tickets, some buddies uh, who donated a lot to, to, to get our uh, our uh, not our airfare, but our rental car and our uh, Airbnb taken care of. And everybody helped so much to the point we actually had to start turning people down and saying we've got it covered. Thank you, guys. Thank you, gals. I cannot believe what you have done for us. It is absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much to each and every one of you for listening to the show, for supporting what we do, for supporting our events. We are about to announce the, uh, what's that thing called? The Film Festival. Very, very shortly. I already have a date. I need to confirm it with Mr. P. Make sure we can get the ginger in there. And of course, we want our new uh, lab rat. Um, What's her name? You guys kept saying Lori, so now I'm stuck Elsa in the show. Anyways, forget all that. This Gravity Lab Radio is brought to you by Performance Designs and the Rating Center. We're going to mix this ad up just a little bit. You'll see why. Number one, PD. Thank you so much. You guys are the other reason this show was possible. Giving us a conference room to use for a week. The guys and gals in the marketing department either postponed or moved some of their meeting locations just to allow us to be there. Such generous and gracious hosts. We really appreciate everything you guys did. Especially Albert Berktold and uh, Jesse O'Neill. You guys opened up the doors. You guys stayed a little bit late for some of these. Uh, Everybody else there was super awesome as well and appreciate everybody except for that dude Kyle 
whatever, Kyle. Uh, man, performance designs, check out their uh, gear store. And I say check out their gear store because it brings me to Gravity Lab, or excuse me, the Rating Center's newest event, the Texas Shootout. The Texas Shootout is an accuracy series modeled after PD Bullseye event. Last year, PD went to eight different drop zones, had a qualifier, top three finishers at the sport accuracy competition went on to the land to compete at finales. This included jumpers with less than 500 skydives. The Texas shootout is exactly the same idea. We're going to be at Spaceland Houston in July, Spaceland Dallas in June, August, and Spaceland San Marcos in September. After that, the top three finishers from each location will be invited to Houston for the finales. The top three finishers uh, of each location, everybody must have less than 500 jumps and a license to enter the competition. That is all the qualifications you need. A skydiving license and less than 500 skydives. And that's at the time of registration. If you make it to the finals and you have more jumps, that is okay. Registration will be opening up the week of June 28th. Just ballparking the dates off the top of my head. The cool parts, man, performance designs wanted to be involved with this and they wanted to help out. They cannot give the same thing they gave to the winner of the bullseye event, but they're still going to uh, step it up a little bit. We have the details coming soon, but they're going to be giving out some gift certificates for the PD gear store for the regional winners. And they're also going to be supporting the, the, uh, the, finals winner with uh, more gift gear store uh, gift certificates, but also with a performance designs jersey. Go to uh, performancedesigns.com. Check out their gear store. You'll see that jersey. It's the orange one. You see it all over the place. I absolutely love it. The, the white sponsored jersey is super cool, but man, I actually like the orange and black one a good bit better. It is a great looking jersey. It is $80. PD is going to throw down and give you that for free. Also with the gear store certificates, you can check out their hat. PD has stepped up their apparel game. I love what they're doing. They have all sorts of great hats. Whether you like mesh snapback trucker hats or you like fitted caps or flat bills, they have a little bit of everything for you. They've even got some good buffs online and they have their own performance designs uh, filtered mask on their web store. You can get shirts, hats, hydration. They have some really great Camelback uh, products. They have a really awesome 40-ounce water bottle and then a nice 20-ounce coffee tumbler. If you're on the go, whether you're drinking water, drinking coffee, you can use these gift certificates in the PD gear store uh, from the Texas Shootout. LBL Timiters will also be supporting us. We'll talk more about the prizes for the Texas Shootout soon. But uh, for now, enjoy Tom Noonan. I'm the target of a meat missile going 150 miles an hour plus. That got really exciting. All of a sudden. <laughs> I'm doing canopy safety. Um, I drive like an Asian, so I don't know if it's the most appropriate thing ever. I'm killing it. Utah, give me two. You are listening to Gravity Lab Radio, hosted by DJ Marvin and Nicholas Lott. Produced by Justin Grubbs. Have we talked about skydiving the whole time? What is up, How are Mr. Doing Grubbs? This morning? Good morning. Doing, doing good. So what I was saying is one of the things we try to do is we don't want guests to tell us stories before we start because you lose that luster. You don't embellish. You don't really embellish embracing the, the story and I've listened to you tell the same story a few times in life and you are such a captivating speaker so as much as you say you feel like we're losing gold I bet you Tom actually saved gold and I bet oh, you perfect. he's got a, a great hold on Tom I'll do this for you a great polish on how he's gonna say it this is a hand gesture 
No pressure there. Thank <laughs> yeah, you for yeah. that. <laughs> Dude, guys and gals, we are live. We do have Mr. Tom Noonan with us today. Tom, how you been, brother? Life has been good. Uh, it's exhausting, but good. Just, just traveling, training, uh, continuing to wake up every day, grateful for doing what I do for a living and being able to work with the people that I work with. I want to kind of describe one thing about you in an easy story. I remember maybe three years ago or something, I'm going to take a $100 flight from Daytona to maybe an hour away and back to get my double diamond or whatever status it was. My $200 cup of coffee. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the neat part is and, and is the next year it happened a month earlier, the next year it happened a month earlier, and it just happened sooner and sooner. And I say that because, dang, you travel a lot, my friend. So for anyone that travels for a living, miles and points and status upgrades, it's critical to your comfort level. And I, this was yeah, probably three or four years ago, I had realized I was going to come up short for diamond status on Delta, which is their highest status. And you get four international upgrade certificates to business class each year. And that's a, a really big perk for that kind of travel. And I called the Delta line maybe a month prior to the year ending. I said, it looks like I'm going to be close. Is my last flight, December 15th, going to be enough for me to reach my diamond status? And they said, yep, everything's fine. You're good to go. I made the trip, came back, and I was $16 short. It was either $8 or $16 short. Facebook rem remembers it. But and this is just based on how much you're, you're spending how much on, I spent on to get, plane tickets. Yep, to get okay. to that. And I could have I purchased uh, onboard Wi-Fi for like $12 <laughs> and not even used it, but that would have got me over the hump to get my diamond status, and I was devastated. I was completely deflated. I'm going to be platinum and not diamond this year. All the diamonds <laughs> are going to get all my upgrades. And so the cheapest, <laughs> quickest thing I could do was buy a round-trip ticket to Atlanta from Daytona Beach. And it was like $180, $200. And I literally flew up there, got my espresso in the Delta Sky Club, and got the immediate next flight back out, same <laughs> flight crew, same flight crew back to uh, Daytona. <laughs> Told them what I was doing at the Daytona airport, because I'm on a first-name basis now with most of the uh, people I work with there uh, from Delta. And they took a fit of laughing over it. And they said, you know what, you're not the only one. You know, people do that all around the country to get their... Uh, their upgrades and to get their status uh, up and get their statuses approved. So yeah, it was a two hundred dollar espresso. It was incredibly expensive. <laughs> I, I've heard of first world problems before, <laughs> yeah, but I don't even know if that falls into the same category. <laughs> However, as as um, financially poor of a decision as that was, getting four upgrade certificates that each worth you know yeah that makes the whole dollars, the whole next year worth it. It justified right? it, yeah. So yeah. I got four certificates that I wouldn't have gotten, or at least two that I wouldn't have gotten the following year to fly business class out of Atlanta uh, or out of Amsterdam back to Atlanta. And that's my, my longest common flight is I typically fly in and out of Europe through Amsterdam. And the return flight with the, the headwind is usually 10, 11 hours, and that makes a big difference. That's a yep. huge difference. I've, I've flown to New Zealand, and that's a bit longer, and my gosh, it, it's uncomfortable on a plane that long. Yeah. I think you've done Dubai or something? Uh, yeah, I think th the longest leg of that flight is Houston to uh, Istanbul, Turkey. Mm-hmm. And, uh, dude, I'm, I'm really good at being comfortable on an airplane. Like That's I, because I go pee fit. right before I get on the airplane. <laughs> I get a window seat, and I lay against the, the wall the whole time, and I don't get up. Mm. I, uh, I don't do well. You know, in international flights, the guy who uses the aisles and does the walks because they let us, I, I have to. I use it. It's just, it just makes me comfortable. So have, have you noticed the quality of beards in this room before we get any further? We've kind of got a few stages going on. 
He really does. It's almost like in a circle of yeah. length right here, man. It's going from shortest <laughs> the, to longest. It's the circle of beard. It's beautiful. Uh, recently, what's his name? Uh, Beyond Marketing, James LeBerry, yep. had posted a comment on Facebook like, hey, what's your favorite skydiving podcast? And thank you so much to all our fans who actually commented that it was Gravity Lab Radio. But somebody commented and said, what's with all the podcasters in skydiving having beards? So it seems like in skydiving, a lot of us do have beards in podcasting. I don't know what it is. Well, I think you just answered that this morning. The beard puts the microphone yeah, just helps. far enough away so that you can communicate without being too close or too That's far right. away with it. It does help promote mic awareness. That's yeah. part of part of the briefing for most gentlemen. Hey, our, our whiskers just barely tickle the microphone. And so. it makes a nice wrestling noise. Oh, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> yesterday when we said that, Kristen Johnston, the manager... Yep. At the land, she said, yeah, yeah, okay, so I can feel it on my mustache right now, and I giggled. <laughs> but every now and then you see a lady with a mustache, so I kind of did the, like, peeked over the mic, like, uh, okay, she doesn't have a mustache, she's just being cute. It's like, oh, my God, I kind of got creeped out. We, we had a uh, deli owner in Houston who had a reasonable <laughs> amount of facial hair. <laughs> super nice lady, super nice lady, but she she outgrew a couple of the young fellas on the DZ. Um, it's okay. It's it's to say okay. Strong woman. Well, if any of you guys have time while you're here in Deland, there is a barbershop on Woodland right in downtown Deland called the Rusty Razor uh, Barbershop. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of uh, beard artists. That's the only way I can describe it. These guys are phenomenal. There's everybody here that has a beard in the Deland area. These guys do the maintenance. They do all the trimming and all the shaping of it, and they are just absolutely phenomenal. So whether you're going to grow it out or just tighten up what you have, you guys absolutely should make time to go to the Rusty Razor Barbershop while you're here. Check out their website. You can make an appointment online. It'll be worth the trip. Did, did we talk about the show Whisker Wars on here before? No, no I had no clue. Yeah, Never yeah, I pulled with up the, the, with Jack Passion. Yeah, I you pulled don't up that this? dude on the oh, podcast. and it's I like talked about doing the birdcage beard, beard and mustache <laughs> competition. Yeah. yeah, yeah, man, this is a hundred and thirtieth episode, so I have no great memory of what we've done in the I, past. I feel well. bad for people that I'm sure we talk about the same things a whole lot that maybe we're we're not super aware of. Oh man, I I, <laughs> I hear Rogan repeat the same things over and over again, and I actually don't mind hearing it over and over again. But I think immediately, how many of our listeners are like, "Oh, great, DJ said that stupid thing again." So I'm sure they hear it repeated. Do, do you have a phrase that stands out? We're, we're both Joe Rogan nerds. I think we both listen to every episode at some point. Do you have a phrase that stands out in your mind of something you hear him say a lot? Man. Uh, I'll just tell you mine because I hear him say ground nesting birds all the time. <laughs> Any show that they're talking about like conservation or hunting or anything, ground nesting birds, I, do, I bet I've heard him say it a hundred times. I've seen memes on subreddit of Joe Rogan saying ground nesting birds. How have you? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm not the only one who's noticed. No. The, it, the, the, the phrase, it's entirely possible. Did you see that, that video? No. So the, the, there's a video. It's probably 20 different images of him overlaid from, from different podcast episodes. And they've just put them all, you know, at first when you watch it, it's just a bu- it sounds like just a bunch of noise because they've synced up in the in his speech, the moment where he says, it's entirely possible. So you just hear all this jumbled speech, and then for one second you hear him say, it's entirely possible, and then you just hear the rest of the jumbled speech. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure we're the same. It's entirely possible. (laughs) 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 The one thing that always stands out to me is anytime they talk about weed, and he talks about ingesting weed, Mm 11-hydroxy-metabolite, I don't even know what he's saying, but I think I just repeated it right. I, you hear him say it to everybody. I'm yeah, like, anytime he's talking about edibles or yeah. hydroxy metabolism. Well, yeah, when you eat it, your body totally processes it different. <laughs> yeah, that, that same conversation. Yeah. So hopefully you don't hear uh, too much repeat of Tom because, dang, man, you've got some stories. And I kind of want to pick up where we left off because okay. your last visit was all about Everest. And honestly, we could do, I think, a whole nother show on it. And we're not. 
But where we left off with Everest is where you pick up because recently didn't some records get set on Everest or something? So back in May of this past year, we're in 2020 now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So back in May of 19, um, a teammate of mine, Paul Henry DeBar from France, he and I went out there with a couple of parachutes and some tack time that we had uh, p- picked up and we put him on a uh, call, the West Call of Barunse, at 20,100, and I want to say 70 feet. At, at that point, it's so high. It could be 20,150, 20,190, but it's approximately 20,170 feet. And it was the first time somebody had ever landed a sport parachute or a solo parachute at that altitude, and it was extraordinary. Uh, we knew the gear was going to work. Uh, of course, it was a Performance Designs PD Navigator 240. And we brought a 240 and a 260. We weren't sure which one we wanted to use for the event. And he's a, a light guy. He's probably 150 pounds, if, if that. And so I can't do the calculation off the top of my head what the loading was. But we did some practice jumps um, at a lower drop zone and basically trying to determine how it was going to manage the turbulence, the headwinds. And um, yeah, then we put him up there in May, and he had a beautiful stand-up landing, just over 20,000 feet, a gorgeous day. The sun was shining. The green canopy was lit up like a Christmas tree. I mean, it was just stunning. So to be able to put a friend up there and watch him accomplish something extraordinary, and truth be told, at this point in time, he's the most uh, experienced, qualified, high-altitude parachutist in the world. So to be able to put him there and show that skill set was just uh, extraordinary. It was pretty awesome. You got to watch his actual landing? So I was standing at 18,200 feet at a lower base camp wearing oxygen because we hadn't gone up there prior to uh, acclimatize. Our, Our mountain team was acclimatized for the altitude. I personally wasn't, so I was up there wearing an oxygen mask and an oxygen cylinder. I was basically the world's highest O2 tech for that Mm. period. So we landed at 18,200 feet, um, one by one brought up the gear, brought up the people. And I just stood up there by myself for about an hour, which is kind of cool being up at that altitude. It's kind of like being on Mars, I would imagine. And having the oxygen mask on, I felt kind of like an astronaut, you know. And it was just so cool that I was up there by myself. And so I waited for the helicopter to show up. Um, we work with a pilot there in Nepal. His name is Deepak. And I call him the Nepali Top Gun. I mean, he is just an absolutely extraordinary pilot. He can do things with that helicopter that I wouldn't even think physics would allow. It's just extraordinary. And so I, uh, Deepak came in uh, with PH, or Paul Henry, and uh, we swapped over his oxygen cylinders, got them all taken care of. I had a little... Uh, my little gear kit with me, so I was going through all my stuff. You know, we left the blades running on the helicopter just because it was efficient enough to do. So I got the helicopter in the back, spinning, making noise, just this beautiful sight of this um, this Eurocopter B3. It has a, a dragon painted on the front of it, so it's just stunning to look at as well as its performance level. Worked with PH, got him all situated, got him ready to go. He went up, and then I just watched the helicopter go up. And I can see it from where I'm at, but it's equivalent of looking at the top of a building, you know, looking at the top of a skyscraper. I can see what's going on, but I'm far enough away that it's in the distance. And um, could see it happen, saw his landing for where I was. Our mountain team was up on the, the call with him. And it was, yeah, just stunning, absolutely amazing. And everybody came back down to 18,000 feet. We had a little celebration there. And then two by two, like Noah's Ark, we brought everybody off the, um, the base camp we were stationed at. 
went back to Kathmandu and had a celebration. And we were in and out of there in like 36 hours. So that was pretty stunning. Because usually we're up there for weeks at a time. But the weather window was perfect. The operational team was perfect. And we had a great plan. And it just worked out extraordinarily well. So it was really cool to put them up there. So that was kind of, that was the last of the, um, of the records that we had set through Ever Skydive. And then in November, I actually stepped down in November for the, uh, the trip. My father wasn't, very, wasn't feeling very well uh, in the fall. So I made the decision to stay home for that trip and then sent the team up. Um, and truth be told, our team is so well experienced and so well rounded between Omar and Wendy and PH that they really don't need me up there to be truthful. I'm kind of, you know, cat herding is about all it is because everybody up there is so uh, so dialed into what their job is. So I stayed home in November uh, with my family and they went back up there and took more customers or more guests back to Nepal. We had a gentleman in a wheelchair that was paralyzed from the chest down um, and he flew the Kuwaiti flag up there. And it's an interesting story. It was an amazing uh, program because years ago, Bill Booth had made a comment that the Himalaya was the world that the wheel forgot. It's just not a very, uh, there's no roads, there's no, I mean, there, there's just paths for, for uh, walking and trekking, but it's not a very easy place to navigate in a wheelchair, to be truthful. And our team just jumped on the opportunity to make it happen. We you know, used the helicopter support to get him everywhere he needed to go. He did an extraordinary job. His, uh, his goal was accomplished, and he was a national hero, from what I understand, back home. And those are the kind of things that we, we've always worked on, is trying to elevate others to achieve their goals in life and achieve their goals in skydiving. So that was a really good uh, program for us in November. And then from there, they moved on to Skydive Pokhara, which is the southern part of Nepal, or it's actually the western uh, part of the Himalaya, but we call it the lower drop zone. Same beautiful view, just no oxygen needed this time. And an international group of friends that I had arranged all showed up there together, and they made tandem jumps out of uh, the B3. I think they were averaging something like, uh, let me make sure I give it an accurate number. They did 180 tandem jumps out of the B3 over the course of four to five days, so it was just moving. It was up and down all day, they were just jamming. And I had friends from the US, friends from Dubai, friends from all over the, the world, all converged there together. And I've always felt that if I had a skill set in life, it's not skydiving, it's being able to connect extraordinary people. And especially in environments like that, you have to have people that not only are able to do the job they're tasked to do, but be able to get along with each other and not even necessarily be friends. It's easy to work with someone when you are friends with them, you know them from history. We have a history, we have a, a rapport together. But when you meet someone for the first time, can you engage them? Can you be the same person with a stranger? Can you work with them in that environment? And this group of people that we put out there, uh, just extraordinary. There's such a great group. And again, I sat home in Boston getting my daily updates on Facebook and on text message and was just so proud of everybody to see what we've all built over the last 13 years now, 13 years, 15 or 16 trips. And this was the first time in 13 years that I didn't actually go to Nepal on a trip. So it was, it was an interesting experience to be able to be home with my family, with my father who was sick, and to be able to know that everybody up there was doing their jobs and that it was um, it's an extraordinary success. I want to go backwards a little bit through so many things you just said. So first of all, if you're listening to the show and you don't and you have not listened to the first episode, absolutely. When people say, I, I, I'm new to your podcast, what episode should I listen to? Episode 32. You saw me on the phone. I was looking this up. Yeah. Episode 32 is by far one of my favorite episodes. 
Uh, Tom Noonan visited us November of 2017. That's the last time we did this Man, together. where does the time go? Dude, I mean, it goes to my gray beard, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> You'll catch up at some point, but you have hair and no gray, not as much gray, so I hate you. It's um, all colored. <laughs> it's all colored. Uh, dude, I actually threatened to start using Just for Men. I looked into it, and my wife's like, you can't. I'm like, but you dye your hair to not be gray. And she goes, well, I'll stop dyeing my hair if you start dyeing your beard. And so I was like, okay, I'm just not going to argue with you. You win the battle. Well, here's my, in defense of my decision to use beard coloring, I'm turning 46 tomorrow, so I'm getting old. Hey, happy early Welcome birthday. Welcome to the club. Thank you. Happy early birthday us. to me. And it's growing in every color. Every color of the beard rainbow from <laughs> white to silver to black red. to brown to red, yeah. every color in it. And it's not coming in evenly on e- each side. So I, once they're connected and they're the same on both sides, I'm going to let it go. But until then, once a month, give it a little bit of color. I started with a racing <laughs> stripe right here, and I yeah. used to joke around, like, it makes my face look fast, dude. It's a racing stripe. And I had the same issue, but yep. my wife argued that I couldn't do it. And you know Valerie. Would you yes. argue with her? I would not, no. And it's not that she's mean if y'all don't know Valerie. It's just she's the sweetest woman in the world, and you don't argue with somebody like your girl, Julie. I don't know. Are you guys married? No, we've been together a little over seven years. Yeah. Life partners call it that. Um, yeah, we just we met at a drop zone. We met in... Skydive City. I want to. I, I always say Skydive City, Zephyr Hills, but we met down in Z Hills, and uh, yeah, it was just we went out for lunch one day, and still out to lunch seven and a half years later. How's yeah. that for an Man. explanation? We're still out to lunch seven and a half so years later. So actually, the first time I met her, you guys just started dating. Yes. Okay, because I, I remember I th- actually you, her, I, Mark Cruzy. That was the, f- the first yep. time I met her. It was the four of us at lunch together yep. one day, and uh, I, I didn't realize that was a new relationship. Yeah. I want to go back to Paul Henry for a second. He jumped to 240 and landed at 20,000 some odd feet. Yes. What does he normally jump at sea level? What kind of, what main? So at sea level, he's typically jumping an 80 something cross brace and a 110 something non cross brace, something around those, those uh, maybe 120 non cross brace and an 84 or 86 cross brace canopy. I jump an 84 Valkyrie, a 120 Spectre. And in our, your last visit, we talked about I might be jumping what size canopy at some of these, uh, some of these altitudes. And it's, what we tell jumpers is you go up an altitude, you need to increase size, et cetera. And it becomes obviously much more important. Yep. How could you compare his landing at 20,000 feet on a 240 compared to sea level on a 120 maybe? So the joke is, and I say it with full respect uh, to the the dangers that everybody uh, presents themselves to when they work in high-altitude environments, but the the joke is you can land any canopy at any altitude. (laughs) It's just how well it's performed, you know what I mean? um, So to be able to land at an altitude of 20,000 feet and have a stand-up landing that it was, of course, a bit of a runout, if you will. You know, it was a fast landing, a uh, couple of steps to stabilize. It wasn't a zero-zero hover at 20,000 feet. These canopies are coming down with tremendous uh, forward speed and glide uh, across the ground when the, the ground effect occurs. And ground effect's going to happen at sea level or at 20,000 feet or any altitude in between. And it's really a matter of feeling the canopy and being able to effectively predict what the what the next uh, evolution of the flight cycle is going to be and that's really where these high altitude landings and there's a lot of people that have over the years have had the opportunity to make these jumps at these altitudes that's really where you move from a luck bucket to a skill bucket if you will you know the more you jump the more experience you have at these higher altitudes the more intuitive your performance becomes where 
you're going to flare the canopy regardless of the altitude you're landing at in the same capacity you normally would, but the response you're going to get is going to be subtly different or dramatically different depending upon the conditions, the density altitudes, the predominant winds, if there's any headwinds. And, and to be able to assess all that information, kind of like a computer just processing it all, uh, the more experience, the more data you have to add to that assessment process. And that's really what it comes down to. Landing a parachute's not a difficult process in terms of the mechanics of it. Flare the parachute. Identify where you are in the flight cycle, apply the necessary uh, toggle stroke to start the flare, move through the flare, and finish the flare. But to do it well, and to do it consistently well over and over again at varying altitudes, varying um, varying uh, conditions, that's where the skill set, the, the artist part of it comes from. And that's why, you know, Canopy coaching schools like Flight One are so important to what we do is that they teach that process. The thing that I've always said is that canopy coaching is really defined as two, ne two necessary needs. One is teaching you the mechanics of how to uh, perform the parachute landing. But second, and equally as important, is how to take that information that you're gathering and, and expand on that. Because you might come to DeLand here and take a course with Flight One and have them for a weekend, two or three days. But then the course is over and you've gone back to your home drop zone. Do you have the ability to now apply what they've taught you and expand on that new information? Because you're going to continue to get more information, new information as you get more experienced and have more landings under your belt. How do you apply that information to what you were currently taught in the, the course that you were attending? So that's why I think Canopy coaching courses are so critical to the future of our sport and the safety of it. Man, on that sidetrack, I just want to let people know if you leave any coaching session, canopy, free fall, whatever, and you don't know what you're working on after that coaching session, and if you don't know how to at least partially debrief yourself after that coaching session for at least the next so many jumps, then that might not be a bad coach. It just might not be the right coach for you because we don't all jive. I, I can't right. say they're all bad coaches. So I love how you, you point that out. And, and man, I, I do a lot of coaching myself and I, I give you homework. You know these things. You can watch these videos. Give your homie a camera. If you can see these things, you should be able to do it yourself. One of the interesting things, though, is Paul Henry can stop, soft stand up, hover a landing to it. To basically, you, we're stalling our canopies at the end of the flight if we're doing right. them right. But you have so thin air and so fast speed, even on a 240, he, he has to run them out. He can't shut that canopy down the same way. Uh, Effectively, there's always going to be, at those altitudes, there's going to be some kind of forward speed at that wing loading. You could go up there with a tandem canopy, for example, and load it 0.5 or 0.7. It may, in fact, still accomplish a zero-zero hover. But the secondary concern, so the question would be, well, why don't you just go up there with a tandem parachute, go up with a 330 or a 360 or a 400? The larger the parachute, the softer the landing, you know, in theory. But there's also the aerodynamics of the parachute, its ability to maintain stability and turbulence. And one of the interesting things about that jump was that there was a sheer wall, 900 feet, 1,200 feet, there was a sheer wall leading up to it, which led to a very turbulent airflow possibility. It wasn't guaranteed turbulence, but we knew that we had the potential to put this parachute through um, a turbulent condition. So we wanted a parachute that was not just large enough to land him softly and safely, but also effectively small enough to be able to get through the turbulence and maintain rigidity based on its design and its wing loading to get through that, um, that airflow and, again, put him down safely and cleanly. What are the winds like at 20,000 feet? Like, how much turbulence do you normally see? How strong do the winds get? It really depends on 
the time of day, the conditions, your ability to sit and wait. You know, you could wait. There are ideal moments up there where it's a no-win condition. They're rare. They're usually right at sunrise and for about seven to nine minutes. Mm -hmm. But there's always a, a rare moment in each day where there's just no wind at all. So trying to time your entire project, your movement of people, the jump itself, dictating all of that around what are ultimately hope to be the best wind conditions at that exact moment. So it can be calm and, and stable, but it can shift immediately to turbulent and unstable depending upon the temperatures, where the winds are coming from. It's basically like a, a wind tunnel, you know, where the, the winds accelerate through the mountains. They get forced together as they're blowing through the mountains. And then as they come out the other side, they've accelerated. So there's the topography of the area affects how the winds are going to uh, create either a steady flow or turbulence depending upon the direction they're coming from, the time of day, the heat, the sun, the density, altitudes, all those things, humidity in the air, all those things that are beyond my ability to explain in a technical capacity, but that's just the, the layman's terms from a, my perspective. So th this is the smallest solo canopy to be to be landed at this altitude? To my knowledge, yes. Okay, so, um, and he's con jumping a considerably larger parachute. So wh what's the highest landing altitude for a tandem? So right now, about two years ago, I want to say, Back in November of 17, 16 or 17, um, one of my friends and a teammate, uh, Marty Rett, uh, he landed uh, Hunter Williams at 16,900 feet on a tandem jump with a TP-460. Was a 460, okay. That, yeah. was my, that was a question I was leading to, is how, how much bigger are the tandem canopies? And that was um, density altitude 16.9, but I believe my memory correct, it was about a 19,000-foot landing based on the density altitude. So... It was 16.9 MSL, but ni about 19,000 with, um, with the sea level, uh, 19,000 with the density altitude. And then about 45 minutes later, uh, I came in and landed in, landed in the same area with uh, Ted Atkins, one of our teammates, who has unfortunately recently passed uh, a couple years ago. He had an accident on a mountain that he was climbing. But he and I landed at the same 16,900, uh, 19,000 density altitude uh, drop zone in a village called Gorikshep. So we landed a TP-400 there. Uh, Ted was a lighter guy, um, so we we were comfortable with the wing loading and what we were doing. I'll never forget uh, boarding the, uh, the helicopter. Right before we got on the, the helicopter, um, Fred Williams, who's the president of CPS, he was load organizing that trip for us. So he was load organizing back and forth with the teams that were jumping. And he said, the conditions are closing in, and it's up to you if you want to go. And we looked at Ted. Ted looked at me, and we went, well, let's see what we see, and you know, we'd rather do it, and, and we'll just make that decision as adults. We're going to make this jump. And we got out. Everything was perfect. And I think I mentioned this on the last podcast. We looked down, and there were five wind blades. And they were all pointing in different directions. And they were about 15 feet apart from each other. So we <laughs> knew it was going to be squirrely, but we had a beautiful, stunning landing. And I have this big, blown-up 32 by 24 photo of Ted and I. There's horses in the background, yaks in the background. It looks like we're landing on Mars, if Mars had horses and yaks. It looks like it was just on this other planet. And I'm really glad we made that decision. It was, again, the culmination of everything I just talked about. You know, you have an intuitive understanding of your ability to manage a process, an intuitive understanding of how the environment is going to present itself. And then there's always a little bit of risk in everything we do. I mean, skydiving is inherently dangerous, and it's 
effectively for all of us, whether it's our first AFF jump or landing at 19,000 foot density altitude, anywhere in between, you're assessing the risks and using whatever risk mitigation procedures you feel are necessary to accomplish that. And um, yeah, it was a great opportunity for all of us to do it. I was so proud of Marty and Hunter. Uh, they were the first ones in. We had just landed at 15,000 feet prior to that, I think the day earlier, uh, landed, and that was at that point the highest tandem landings ever recorded at 15,000 feet. Now here we are, 16,9 or 19,000, and uh, it's pretty extraordinary. So with this area of the world, how, how flat are the areas where you get to land? Are you still landing? Kinda, I mean, I'm imagining you're landing on the side of a mountain with some sort of gradient going. Well, the goal is always to land in a flat location, mm -hmm. and th they are up there. It's really just a matter of, one, having the blade time to go find them, get in a helicopter and just search. It's kind of cool. You know, you get in a helicopter, you throw on an oxygen mask so you don't get hypoxic, and you just circle the Himalaya for hours looking for ideal locations that from a distance might look perfect. Then you get up close and it's all jagged, broken rock. And you go, nope, forget that one. Let's go, you know, 30 degrees that way and let's see what we can find on the other ridge line. And then the other, the other consideration there is getting back. You can find these great little locations, but now can you get your support team in there uh, can you get in and out? If there's an injury, are you going to be able to get the person that's injured out quickly and efficiently, or are you going to be stuck somewhere? And so making sure you've considered all those different criteria when assessing some place to land, that's one of the big things we do. But most of the landing areas, as long as we have something the size of a soccer field um, or football field, um, a European football field, as long as we have something that's flat and about that size, and we're good to go. And there's little pockets of that type of flat landing area all around the Himalaya. I have two questions. First, have you guys had to deal with an injury with any of these jumps? We have not had any injuries on any high altitude jumps that we've been on. I want to say in 2008, the first year that we were part of another project, one of the uh, solo jumpers I want to say either sprained or broken ankle, um, landed off the drop zone, uh, weather rolled in, the clouds came in, and uh, landed off the airport in, I want to say, a yak field that has stone walls. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to say that they hit a yak because I don't recall, but I think they, they landed on a rock and either sprained or broke their ankle. So that's the only injury that I can think of going back 13 years now. Second question. How often does it hit you how insane what you're doing is? Like, do you ever have that that moment where you look at things real objectively of like, man, I'm just in a helicopter in the middle of the Himalayas looking for a place to land a parachute. Do, do you have those? It happened once. And we were in the Western Himalaya. We had already accomplished our Everest Skydive program. And we were, as we do, we were scouting other locations for future programs. And if anybody wants to Google Manang, M-A-N-A-A-G, Manang in Nepal, it's this beautiful, rustic, it's in the middle of the mountains. It looks like something out of a, of a Star Wars movie, you know, like Tatooine. I mean, it's just like this beautiful mountain uh, environment where people have lived on the mountains and in the mountains for hundreds and hundreds of years. But to get to this area and this beautiful, it was 11,000 foot landing area. It was beautifully uh, positioned for what we wanted to do. We had to go over a pass of snow, uh, banks and mountains and peaks. So effectively, we had to take the helicopters up over the pass at 19,000 feet and then back down into Manang Valley. And we finished our jump. Everything went great. We got over the pass to get into Manang. But after we jumped, we packed all of our gear up. And I want to say that the 
back of the helicopter was uh, my teammate Ryan Jackson, Wendy Smith, uh, Derek Thomas, and myself. And I know Derek was there because Derek and I were basically face-to-face kind of crammed into this back of this helicopter, and we can both see out the window. And we're sliding up, getting lift up the peak, trying to get to the 19,000-foot peak to get over it, and then slide down the other side. And we get up to about 18.5, and the pilot doesn't have enough lift from the, the helicopter, so we slide back down. <laughs> and he tries again, and we slide back down. And again, to the credit of the pilot, the pilots are extraordinary. We, our confidence level in our, our, our pilot was 100%. But being skydivers, being used to being in the back of the bus, we're visually aware that we're 50 feet off the deck. And if for some reason, you know, the whole time we're 50 feet off the deck up and we're 50 feet off the deck coming back down again. Like that uh, amusement park ride, the, the, the pirate ship, yeah. <laughs> we were the pirate ship in a $2 million helicopter going up and back down again. And up and in that one location, we kind of realized that there was no place to really put the helicopter down if there was a problem. And we're looking around, okay, well, there's a spot he can land. But now it becomes something out of a movie where if we do put the helicopter down here in the snow in this remote location that was a 20, 30-minute flight between the two destinations we were at, we could be stranded here for hours. And how are they going to come get us? Because th- if this helicopter can't get up and down, how's another one going to come get us? We could be you know, overnighting in the snow, all sleeping in the helicopter. So long story short, never feared for our safety. But the moment that we were there, I remember thinking, this is nuts. Like We had an amazing trip. And I remember looking at Derek, Derek looked at me, and I don't know if, if we held each other, if we just held hands, or if we just put a hand on each other's knee, looked at each other, we're like, it's gonna be okay, we'll be fine, everything's gonna be all right. And just that moment, that one connection between him and I, like I needed that to ground myself at that point. This is 2010 or 11, still relatively new to the whole project and still working on a trust level of being in these environments and putting myself in these peculiar situations, if you wanna call it that. And I remember just, we got back over the, eventually on his fourth or fifth attempt, he got up and then we got down the other side and, and the collective exhale of relief from everybody, we're not gonna have to sleep in the snow tonight. We're not gonna be stranded overnight <laughs> in the Himalaya. We're gonna have coffee and warm meals. <laughs> we get to shower today, this is great. Um, so that's my, my one moment of recognition, 2011 or 12, where we were coming back from Manang into uh, Pokhara we made it over the we made it over the the Himalaya peak that we took three or four or five attempts to get over. And again, it's a skill of the pilot. He was so great, and he even said, "If if I don't make it after this next attempt, I'm just going to turn around. We'll we'll go back and we'll we'll figure something else out." So we never were we were never in concern for our safety, but it was a uh, it was at the statistical distribution of one of the crazier dumb things we've done in our careers out there. But it was it was awesome. Wow, that's mind blowing. I mean, just just uh, just to think about what it's like to be in in a helicopter. You're basically using like the. I don't know if the, if this even applies and how cold of an environment it is, but is is there lift off the mountains? Like, do you get ridge lift? Yes, that's what they're looking for. So, so you're, you're using this as a ramp to try yeah. and j- jump yourself over the top of a nineteen thousand <laughs> foot. Like, no part of you wondered, hey, what's going to happen when we try and go back? Like, can we make it back up the other side of this ramp? Well, we knew, so on the way out, I mean, again, I wish I had my video camera. Um, if any of you guys remember the helicopter runs at the World Freefall Convention with Rod, uh, when they would, cut, they would cut out the trees, I don't know if that was good for the environment, but they'd have a cutout in the trees, and as he took off and 
went through the cornfields, he would pass through this set of trees where the blades were above them, but the fuselage was effectively like a field goal going right through the, the, the uprights. Mm -hmm. And it was a stunning, stunning part of the, the process. That's exactly what it felt like. The way the Himalaya were set up, it was like this goalpost of two peaks, a snow-covered ridge, and the helicopter was trying to slide up into it and then get down the other side of it. So the visual of it, I wish I had had the foresight to turn my video camera back on, but it was, a, it was just a stunning, stunning experience. So something we talked about, I don't know if we've mentioned this since you've been here, but uh, one thing that really intrigued me that, that DJ had mentioned is that you have skydived on every continent. Is that true? It is, yes. I have made seven, I've made tandem jumps on all seven continents. I have yet to make a sport jump in Antarctica. That will be <laughs> next December, most likely. And is that not just a crazy statement for you to make? I mean, do you realize how crazy? I have yet to make a sport <laughs> jump in Antarctica, but here, <laughs> but here we go. So, yes, uh, I've always been fascinated by the world, the, um, the idea that every continent, uh, Antarctica in and of itself is an absolute mystery. And for anyone interested in learning more about Antarctica, um, Herman Landsman uh, turned me on to a book called Fingerprints of the Gods, mm -hmm. and it talks about Antarctica. And is, is that, uh, who's the author of that book? I can't I'm, recall I'm the author off the top of my head. The book's sitting uh, in my come desk to me in a work. second. But Antarctica is such a mystery that in the... Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock, yep, uh, that's yeah. it. Thank you. In the 1500s, there was a map made by a Turkish map maker who did a, is it cartography? Whatever the word is for yep. map making, of Antarctica before there was ever snow on it. And there was no way to prove him right or wrong because it, the Antarctica was covered in snow and ice. The ice uh, it was completely whited out, for lack of a better term. There was ice and snow over the entire landmass. So there was no way to prove whether it was right or wrong. And in the corner of the map, it said, you know, used source documents to create this. And the source documents were never found. So in the 1970s or 60s of the 20th, 20th century, ground penetrating radar was invented. And they did the ground penetrating radar assessment of Antarctica. And he got it right to latitude and longitude of every landmass structure, every, you know, every peninsula, everything there. And it was effectively impossible for him to be able to do that in the 1500s. I think it was 1560 or 1570, but he got it right. So how did he do that? You know, and there's all kinds of philosophies. That's what the book is about. I won't ruin the ending, but there's all kinds of philosophies about prior civilizations and other um, intelligence here on Earth before us. Gra and Graham Hancock, he's popularized a lot of those theories. He's been on the Joe Rogan pod podcast. Has he? Yeah, super smart guy. So just to be there, to be, on a, to be in that environment, standing on a, a blue ice glacier and seeing air bubbles that were trapped 40,000 years ago directly below you, that part of the research they'll do out there is they'll drill into the ice, uh, they'll drill into the glaciers, and they can actually sample the air from what it was like 40,000 years ago. And that's just to me mind blowing. Yeah, I, th I wow. think that's a part of the process how they identify like the the growth in CO two emissions. Yep. Yes. Yeah, and one of the cool projects that the uh, one of the scientific scientific teams are working on this year was they were looking for microplastics. I didn't even know what a microplastic was, but apparently a microplastic is any piece of plastic less than five millimeters, four or five millimeters, tiny little pieces of plastic. They get caught up in the air flow just like pollen does. You know how like you can get pollen from Hawaii and it will uh, end up in the U.S. or it'll end up like on the mainland in, in California carried by the jet stream. So they're actually finding plastics in Antarctica that Antarctica is a pristine location and it's coming from all of the, uh, all the pollution and all of the, the, the lack of care, if you will, of how we manage uh, 
putting plastics into the ground, it's getting up into the windstream and it's, it's even finding itself in places like Antarctica. So that's pretty shocking to see that we're littering in Antarctica without even knowing it. That's nuts. Yep. That's sad. That's sad, yeah, super sad because yeah. I, I don't know if I'll ever make it to Antarctica in my life. But, I, man, to be able to go there and see such a pristine place and a beautiful place and to know that we probably won't see a lot of these microplastics, but to know it's littered with it, it just, yeah. it's, we need to take better care of this planet. Absolutely. Well, and so to answer your question, I never doubted that I would skydive on all seven continents. From a, person, a purely personal goal of life philosophy that I love traveling, I love skydiving, and because of skydiving, I've been afforded the opportunity to travel. And it was always a question of when, not if. Mm -hmm. I just, I never knew how to accomplish it. I never knew what I was going to be able to do. And then life just sort of unfolded the way that it did. And I, I put a lot of work and effort into this part of my life. Like I'm if you guys get a chance and you want to stop by my office, you'll see I've got 13 months of calendars out and I'm looking at all the different places that I need to go, that I want to go, the projects that I'm working on, and I'm booking stuff out into like January of 2021 already because I want to make sure that I have time to do all the things that I want to do. So it was never a question of can I skydive in Antarctica? It was how am I going to skydive in Antarctica? That was the question. What do I need to do to make this happen? And it's been a 20-year journey to get there. It wasn't easy. Uh, it was a hard trip and a lot of um, blood, sweat, and tears, you know, putting other projects together, other sacrifices in life. But we did it. And um, now, today, uh, my teammates, Paul Henry, and my other teammate, uh, Glenn Singleman from Australia, we've helped the Antarctic Logistics Expedition Company, ALE, we've helped them form a skydiving operation in Antarctica, like an actual standardized program with... SOPs, um, procedures, aircraft procedures, uh, how we can manage this process in between all the other things that are done in Antarctica. And it's an extraordinary story to think about. The, the aircraft we're flying are to Havilland Twin Otters. They live in Canada. They spend their winters northern hemisphere, summers northern hemisphere, excuse me, in the Canada going up to the Arctic Circle. And then they spend their, their winters down in Antarctica, which is the, the southern hemisphere summer. So these planes are ferried every year back and forth between uh, Canada and Antarctica. And then they, they stop at some point and put skis on them. I, I asked them exactly where they put them on, and I, I forget. But it's got to be Chile or Argentina, right? Those are the two... I'm not sure if they if they land on an ice runway with wheels somewhere else, like even in Antarctica, possibly like closer to the coast. But yeah, I think there's. I want to say they have wheels. They put the skis on in, in Chile, and then the wheels can come up. They land the skis, and then they take the wheels off once they get to Antarctica. But they they sustained three twin otters, a basler. I'd never seen a basler before. I thought it was a DC three, um, and so they've got four aircraft down there on skis, and. The interesting perspective is that as skydivers, you think, okay, the sun is out, the winds are calm, which are both rare to happen at the same time in that environment. Let's go skydiving. Let's, there's the plane, there's the pilot, there's the parachute. We're on a now call. But we're guests in an environment where the key, uh, the, the key um, missions, if you will, are to fly to Vincent Base Camp, are to fly onto the South Pole, which is another four and a half hour, five hour flight. And, Bill Booth will tell you more about that, so I won't talk about the South Pole. That's something he can share with you guys. That 
we can't take the, the airframe away from someone else that needs it for a different project. When you've got 15 people that need this Twin Otter to be available to them for nine hours because it has to get down there and back, the weather forecasting is NASA quality down there. Um, I'm pretty convinced that they're tying into NASA's weather uh, services because they have such amazing forecast abilities. But we had to learn as a skydiving organization that our needs, while immediate to us, may not be what's best for the overall uh, situation in the, in the camp. So normally, and that's where I think that this kind of program makes a unique divergence from other skydiving operations. Like for example, the Maldives are going on right now. Rich Grimm has put on probably the greatest skydiving expedition that we will ever see. Hopefully he does it again next year, Rich. But that being said, it is the, it's the greatest expedition ever, but it's also dedicated to skydiving. He has dedicated aircraft for the jumps, everything. Everyone's going to this location, to the Maldives, specifically to make the skydiving event occur. We're going to a place where we are the last priority, for lack of a better term. The place that we're going to has been in existence for over 20 years, this glacier camp, and they've been taking people to Mount Vincent Base Camp. They've been taking people to South Pole for two decades. They have a fine-tuned machine. They know how to work everything. And now here comes skydiving. We're now an ancillary or auxiliary, auxiliary um, component to an already existing environment. It's like adding a new ride to Disneyland. Disneyland exists. There's already the Space Mountain and all the things everybody else wants to do. And you add a new ride. Well, the new ride can't take priority over everything else. And so helping to develop the, a program that allowed for skydiving to be able to operate in this environment where we are now guests of an already fully existing program. That was the uh, accomplishment of Glenn, myself, PH, and ultimately all of the management of the, the base in Antarctica, that without the ownership of the company, Antarctic Logistics Expedition, ALE, and without the support of the operations manager, the um, the air boss, all the people that live down there, it's like a, it's like a aircraft carrier that's not in the water that doesn't move. <laughs> They've got all that. It's like a city. They've got the same control tower. They've got the same needs of a large city. And they're putting multiple aircraft in and out every day on a skiway, which is the, the runway for skis. They put uh, skiway flights in and out all day. So it's a huge undertaking. And now that they've seen that we can integrate smoothly and quietly into their currently very successful operation, uh, now they're, they're welcoming the idea of bringing uh, tandems down there so we can basically create a tandem program just like we did in Everest, just like we've done in other parts of the world. We can bring tandem clients or guests down to Antarctica to make tandem jumps with us and also lowered the, um, I just said lower is not the right word, open the door for more solo skydiving expeditions as well because now that we've created this SOP procedure, the standard operating procedure for them, they now have a way to integrate solo skydivers into their program in a way that's more um, it's just it's a smooth transition. We're in their, their airspace, we're in their operation without any um, ill effect, and that's the, the goal of it all. So I, I know very little about Antarctica. I can imagine that the climate is probably s pretty similar to, to what you're used to in the Himalayas. Is that is that? Not at all, to be honest with you. I, I just assumed the same it was thing. cold and snowy, but I, uh, elevation is really the question that I'm getting to. So Antarctica, or Everest, is about the same latitude as Tampa. So we'd be dressed just like we are now in May and November throughout the day. It would get cold at night, but our daytime walking around, just like this. 
We put on warmer clothing for the skydiving. For getting out at anywhere from 23 to 29,000 feet, it's going to be minus 30, minus 40 uh, Fahrenheit, but only for a minute or two. And one of the most warming things you can bring with you on any cold weather skydive is adrenaline. Doesn't matter how many layers you have on, when your heart's pumping, adrenaline's flowing, you can get out of an aircraft for a minute to two, even if there's a mild discomfort, and have a five to seven minute canopy ride where you might be a little cold. There's no real need for all this additional clothing or warmth on the ground. Whereas in Antarctica, once you step off the Aleutian, it's minus 30 on the ground. And there's catabatic winds 50 mile an hour on the ice runway could be minus 40, minus 50 degrees. That's at its worst. Normally, the ground temperature is minus 12 degrees Fahrenheit. This last trip we were there, it was minus 12 all day, every day. And minus 12, if the sun is out and it's not windy, you can be standing outside with just a puffer jacket and a ski hat, hands exposed, not be that cold. And it, because the sun never sets, it doesn't get any colder. If the, the wind condition and the, the clouds are typically, in my estimation, what make it warmer and colder during that period. But you do have on warm pants, warm jacket, pretty much throughout the whole ground experience in Antarctica because it is that much colder on the ground from six, 65, 70 degrees Fahrenheit in the Himalaya to minus 12 degrees Fahrenheit uh, in Antarctica. And then on the skydiving side of it, we do wear warmer clothing in Antarctica than we do in Nepal even because we're getting out at similar altitudes because of the um, density altitude. And again, I'm not a smart person when it comes to, to science, but the centrifugal force of the Earth spinning, that the density altitudes are different on the poles than they are in, at oh. the equator. Okay. So like, for example, the stratosphere starts at 68,000 feet on the equator, thereabouts, and it's... 12 or 22,000 feet. I think it's 22,000 feet. It starts on the poles. And it's at our latitude here, it's about 33,000 feet. So the stratosphere is not a, a, a finite layer. It's based on how the Earth spins, the density of the, of the molecules getting pulled apart. So all that being said, it's really cold when you get out at 12,500 feet AGL, which I want to say is about 15,000, 16,000 feet MSL. It's really cold in Antarctica. So in that capacity, having appropriate um, excess layers for the skydiving makes it much more enjoyable. And we also don't have a door on the Twin Otter. They have to take the door off for us. There's no Lexan door. So we have a ride to altitude without a door. Yikes. We'll occasionally bring blankets into the plane. Uh, we've got hot water bottles attached at every seat. So you can, if you want, you can put a hot water bottle on your lap to help warm up your core. But that being the difference between the two, Antarctica was brutally cold, but equally brutally beautiful, if that's even a term, if that's even makes sense. It's just so stunning, so unlike any other part of the world. And kind of getting back to what I started with, the mysteries of being in Antarctica, to be setting foot in a location that we don't know 40,000 years ago, it could have been at the same latitude as um, Sao Paulo, Brazil. And some of the arguments are that it got pulled down to the bottom of the earth through the last 40,000 years. Who knows what's under the ice? But we're there, and it's mystical, it's magical. And the people there, everyone in there is there to accomplish something. They're there to set a goal or to accomplish a goal, whether it's to cross-country ski the last degree, which takes days, and climb Mount Vincent, a summit, one of the seven highest summits in the world. All these people are highly motivated. They're alphas. 
they're all effectively affluent because you have to be to be participating in a trip down there. The typical cost is about $30,000 just to get there and then a higher cost to go to the South Pole and all the other parts of it. So to just be there and be a part of that, and admittedly, I can't afford a $30,000 plane ticket. So to be able to be a part of a program and then work with a team of about 100 uh, staff members down there, we're part of the staff while we're there, we're the, the skydiving operation of this larger staff. And to be a part of that team of uh, everyone down there, there's more PhDs that are in the, the chef's tent than anywhere else in the world. I mean, people go down there to be in Antarctica, and there's all highly intelligent, all highly motivated team members that we work with, and to be surrounded by greatness, basically, is I guess what I would describe the the, the staff down there. Hello. <laughs> oh wait, I want. <laughs> We're catching PD announcements in the background here. So the, it, you you kind of made this uh, this description that you guys are the latest ride to to Disneyland. So the, the infrastructure that's already there is this is it science based is it sports based like these like what what has that infrastructure there in the first place The platform is the company uh, Antarctic Logistics Expeditions and there's two or three different companies that have some form of commercial public experience and exposure to Antarctica There's one company out there that specializes in bringing people to see the emperor penguins on the coast. Another one specializes in bringing people to the, um, the bases, if you will, to the, um, to the military bases for scientific research, again, on the coast. This is the only company that, for the last 20 years, has maintained, established and maintained a full functioning working uh, base of operations on the continent of Antarctica. So center of the continent, about 400 uh, miles from the pole, is this massive camp that they bury it every winter when they leave, and it moves about 15 feet every year as the glacier moves, and then they come back and they dig it out, and then they set up the tents again, they uh, create the, the cooking facilities, the shower facilities, all the different facilities there, and they now for hire as a commercial operation, they will bring people into Antarctica that want to go to the pole. And so they'll have a second camp set up at the pole. They'll fly you in an Aleutian to Union Glacier Base. They'll then fly you in a Twin Otter or a Basler to the South Pole. You, you can stay overnight at the South Pole, or you can come back the same day if the weather permits. And those are all just different costs or fees. So that client, there's probably 30, 40 people a year that will do that. Another 30 to 40 people a year will go to, and maybe 80, will go to uh, Mount Vincent and climb base camp. And they'll have professional climbers that are there for the season, guides that will bring them up and down from Mount Vincent. And then the week we were leaving, they had a 50-person marathon of 26 point whatever, 26.2 mile, yeah. thank you, mile race. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> race, uh, so they flew in 50 marathon runners for three days. And so these are all... That's uh, a ridiculous thing to want to do. Hey, you want to train for a marathon? OPS, oh, it's in Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So that's like the the day-to-day, the -day, that's called the Disneyland Park. That's like what uh -huh. people would go down there for, for personal, personal experience. And then separately from that, on this last trip, uh, Airbnb was there. Airbnb brought down <laughs> their giving back, like large companies should and do, they picked like the eight best 
Airbnb employees uh, from around the world. They had to write letters and participate in this How to Make the World Better project. And these eight employees were selected, and Airbnb brought them down to uh, Antarctica with the microplastics team. So that the whole point was Airbnb is funding the microplastics research down there. It's kind of a, a philanthropy, uh, giving back to the world sort of thing. So they have a whole science station set up there that when people come down and scientists need uh, clean, sterile areas to work, all that's provided by the ALE, the Antarctic, Logist Antarctic Logistics Expedition. So science isn't their goal. This is a for-profit company that provides the infrastructure for everything related. And then its secondary purpose is anytime there's an issue with any scientific or military issue, because there's multiple countries there, this company is effectively the fire station. If there's a problem, if someone's sick, if there's damage to an aircraft somewhere, this company is the 911 call. So they have fuel stashes buried all over the continent. They have food stashes buried all over the continent. They have people with the Basler and the Twin Otters that they can fly anywhere on the continent to get to someone if there's a problem. So anytime there's an issue somewhere, they're the ones that are called to fix it, which is kind of cool. So every now and again, there'll be this hustle of movement of people, and they're flying off to manage something where someone got sick or someone got injured and they needed to be evacuated, things like that. So to bring the conversation back towards skydiving a little bit, you talked about the difference in uh, canopy size that you guys are, are flying up on uh, the Everest expeditions. What is Just because the, the elevation doesn't sound like it's all that great in Antarctica, just a few thousand feet? Correct, yes, so only a couple thousand feet. So are you still having to make... Uh, those sort of dramatic equipment changes? Not dramatic. We do make equipment changes, but for different reasons. The cold weather makes the parachutes work phenomenally well. So the density of the air is, is thick. The parachutes land extraordinarily well down there. That being said, the limit is 150 square feet for sport parachutes. They don't want anything smaller than 150 feet for the sole reason that the small parachutes lead to higher injury rates. And now that, to my knowledge, no one has ever been injured down there in a sport parachute. But think about someone who's flying a Valkyrie or a Velocity, and they, they're used to flying it here at the airport. They know their, their turn heights, their initiation, where they're going to put themselves uh, onto the main landing area. Down there, you're in a new location. Everything's white. It's hard to gauge your altitudes, even with ditters and things like that. And in these types of environments, people have a possibility to go big or go home. You know, the idea of I'm going to go big and swoop the heck out of this landing because I'm in Antarctica. The possibility of injury dramatically increases with the smaller parachutes. So from a put the brakes on perspective, to focus on the skydive, focus on the beauty and the surroundings, the parachute minimums are 150 square feet. So that way, you can still get a little swoop. You can still fly your parachute well and, and have fun with it. But you're not putting yourself in a position where if you hook yourself in, that you're going to end up having to be airlifted out and potentially not be able to be airlifted out because the illusion doesn't fly every day back and forth to Chile. So there's a chance if someone gets injured, they're there for two or three days. Yeah, if you're dealing with a $30,000 commercial plane ticket, I can't imagine the cost to actually airlift a single person out. Yep. So I that's the difference in the parachutes. I w it's something that blows my mind regularly is people will go to these destinations type of skydive places and they take their smallest parachute and like Valerie and I went to do a beach jump one day and I took the biggest parachute I owned and my friends were like, why aren't you going to swoop the beach? I'm like, you can swoop anywhere, but the view is what's different. So I like the idea of having a big parachute, the slower descent rate, because 
gosh, yeah, BU at Antarctica has got to be just mind blowing. So I, 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 you wouldn't have to talk me into jumping in 150, except for like, do you have something bigger I could use? You know, I love that idea of being able to float up there and just see it forever. Um, one of the things you've said and you've kind of talked about is you've set up the SOPs for skydiving operations there. Of course, the canopy size is one of those ideas that you guys have set up. What other special concerns have gone into skydiving in, Sa- in Antarctica? I was going to say South America. So one of the biggest concerns that the company had with our exposure or adding us to their exposure is that the airfield, the skiway, it's a fully functioning airport and planes are coming and going constantly as dictated by the weather, which means that oftentimes they don't have time to wait for things. It might be a situation where an otter has to leave to get out of a weather window and then they're clear sailing all the way to the South Pole or back and forth. Maybe someone has left the South Pole and they have to have access to the skiway at a certain period of time. And the concern about skydivers is primarily the possibility of landing off. That if we're landing, our dedicated landing area is probably 100 meters by 100 meters. So it's large enough for us to access land safely. And we have a, a probably another 50 to 75 meter runoff in every direction. So we have a staked area or a cordoned off area where we land, but then a larger exposed area that if we have to land off, that would be the area we would land off. But the concern is, based on the predominant winds, that if we're getting out north of the skiway, I guess north is everywhere in Antarctica. <laughs> everywhere you go, it's north. But when we get up north of the skiway, the concern is that we're going to overshoot the skiway, and if we come up short, we're going to land on it or land near it and create uh, air, air conflict with the, um, the incoming traffic that has nothing to do with us. So in this last trip, we spent a lot of time really working on the cone of descent, I guess you would call it, uh, to our target area, where our exit altitudes are, where our landing areas are, and that we are able to work efficiently with the other operations happening. Because in, in initially, years ago, they would shut down all other air ops when we were working because they didn't want to risk a skydiver. They didn't know what they didn't know, and they didn't want to risk a skydiver dropping onto the, the skiway when someone was taxiing or taking off. So through consistency and through accuracy of landings, we basically put two wind blades up and, a, and an arrow in, the, in between them and said, w- working with us and working in this process, especially with the tandem program where highly experienced videographer and PH, um, knock on wood, I've made a, a living out of trying to land accurately on tandem jumps. I'm a pretty accurate parachute pilot. We'll put every landing down in, in between these two gates. We'll put them down so you can see not only where we're landing, but from exit canopy descent. You can look here, you can look there, basically mocking up what our descent is going to be. And then if there's a problem, if we have a canopy cutaway, here are the outside areas that we may task as our alternates that none of them affect the, the skiway. And so we did what we promised to do, and we showed them that you can work efficiently in that area and that you can make exits north of the skiway you can overfly the skiway above a thousand feet, just like you would any runway here in Deland, and that it's going to pose no conflict to any of the other aircraft movements that are they're happening in the the process. So, showing them that they were thrilled to to see that we could integrate safely, and they are excited to add more skydiving. And so, sport jumpers as well. We have um, sport jumper 
guests that come with us each year. And again, we focus on accuracy of landing as the primary concern because we want to make sure that we're not landing in locations that haven't been checked for ground penetrating radar for crevices. We want to make sure that there's um, no conflict with any of the other operations, including not just the skiway, but landing in the tented area, you know, things like that, even landing off next to the food tent. It's all available to us as, as options, you know, to land safe, but the idea is we can prevent against that by canopy coaching and by making sure that the skill sets of the people that we work with are validated to be able to do that. Is it a difficult place to find landmarks? I mean, I just imagine Antarctica is a pretty, it, from an altitude of, of 10,000 feet, it probably looks a lot the same. Is that a fair statement? It is. And there are mountains, there's granite rock that's still coming up through the topography that allows us to use on a macro level, we can see effectively where the larger mountains are and then everything underneath it is just white in the middle. And then they'll, they'll set off smoke cans so that we can okay. see large red trails of smoke and that's basically what brings us back. But the way that the, um, the area that we're working in is set up, you can clearly see the, the ice runway in one direction. You can clearly see um, the mountains in the other direction and in between the ice runway and the mountains centered in that is where the, uh, the Union Glacier Camp is. It almost sounds like skydiving in the Midwest. It's all cornfields. You just recognize which cornfield is yours. Exactly. So one thing you mentioned is making sure you're not landing in crevices. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that base camp moves 15 feet every year after it's been buried. So each year you guys go back, or do you have to kind of re-scout the landing areas and reestablish? Oh, we don't have to do that. The advance team, if you want to call it that, the, the first group that goes down there, they're the ones that set up the whole camp. By the time we get there, everything has been set up for us, and we just show up, wait for good weather, work within the, the confines of what we created, and go skydiving. Do you know the, the, excuse me, the length of the, of the runway, the ski way? Three 3,000 feet, probably. I thought it might not well, be. Well, it literally is probably five miles because it's just <laughs> flat in every direction. It's just what they've actually plowed and, and compacted is about 3,000 feet. Have you had to land in the plane and land on that ice runway? No. But taxiing is the coolest thing ever in a plane that's on skis. Do you drift? You drift. <sighs> it's so badass. I would have been happy to just taxi around for an hour. It was the <laughs> coolest thing in the world. Just... You're used to wheels and pavement or grass and to be on skis that are omnidirectional effectively. The rudder will put the ski in any direction. Ah. Yep, they can move it any way they want. It um, gets a little bit of weather veining here and there. It's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. So you're not just drifting because you're sliding sideways because the skis are driving that way, so Well, to speak. the skis are, are pointed forward, but they will side slide just like, a, you know, if, okay. if the, the rudder will overpower the ski and it will, if you are making a tight turn, the skis will slide out you know, to the side, kind of like uh, drifting. Tokyo drift style, yeah. Antarctica drift. Antarctica <laughs> drift. So you've got tandem experience in all, in all these places as well? Yes. Do you feel like you get a different reaction from a tandem student in a place like Antarctica than you would here in Delan, maybe? So Hortensia was our first guest client in Antarctica. And the way that this, the, the process worked is we went down there as a trial run of a tandem program. We made three tandem jumps with video with our, our customers while we were there. And the IL-76 that we fly down on, it's a big Russian uh, cargo plane. And there's really no windows to speak of because it's a cargo plane. But they have a massive television, the same size as the one you have here in the PD conference room. 
And they play videos the whole four and a half hour flight down there, in part to encourage people to participate, go see the emperor penguins, go to the South Pole. And we started showing Skydive Antarctica videos, the ones that we had made the year before, without any setup. We weren't offering it, we weren't selling it. Hortensia is 80 years old. She's from Spain. Mm-hmm. She's about five foot two, maybe 95 pounds. Never been skydiving in her life. And the plane lands and she says, I want to go skydiving. I love this lady. Yes. She says, I want to do that. So imagine this. It's her first skydive. It's not going to be her only skydive. I'm going to meet her this summer in Europe and take her on another jump at some point uh, when I'm back out in Europe. She wants to keep skydiving with me. Heck yeah. So she says, I want to do it. And we said, great. Okay, we're happy to set this up for you. And she's so excited, has no idea what to expect. And I'm, I, I get excited in all my skydives, but I'm really excited for the fact that this person gets to experience tandem skydiving, which is a passion of mine. In Antarctica, which is also now a passion of mine, for the first time. I mean, that's just unbelievable. And at 80 years old, she's just extraordinarily courageous, adventurous, and she wants to go out and do this. So, of course, we put on all the the warm weather gear and put the harness on her, put her in the airplane, and she's just so easy to work with. She's just calm, relaxed. She's cool as a cucumber. She's just ready to go. And put her in the door. And I remember... The moment I left the door with her, you know, usually you have, if you take a 225-pound person, you can feel like kind of a tug on the, the main lift web. It wasn't much of a tug because there wasn't much weight hanging off it. And I just remember it felt more like a sport exit than a tandem exit, you know, because I wasn't getting pulled out the door with the inertia or the center of gravity shifting. And I put her in the relative wind, and I remember just thinking to myself, I'm so excited for this person right now. Like, I cannot believe that... I get to share this experience with someone like this. And she's perfect in a whole jump. She does everything right. And we come down to land, and she's a tiny little thing. And I, my number one concern as a, you know instructor responsible for her safety on landing is I just want to make sure she doesn't hurt her, her feet. Like her, She may not be able to pick her feet up at 80 years old. And we're going to have a bit, little bit of a slide in because there's no wind. So I'm already projecting we're going to slide the, the landing in. It's a little difficult to gauge how deep the snow is, the, the exact location you're landing. So I've already made up my decision as I'm entering my pattern altitude that I'm going to just slide the landing in. I'm going to put my heels in and then just kind of lean back as I'm flaring to keep her off the ground. And at some point when the video is released by ALE, you'll see this exactly what I just described. We come into land, and I've, I'm, I'm basically on my back as I'm sliding in. I can feel the rig, the reserve pack tray is kind of scraping against the, the, the snow as I'm you know, coming back. Her entire body was off the ground, and her legs and her feet were about three feet off the ground the whole landing. Yes. And I can see the tips of her toes over her shoulders. I'm like, yep, that's exactly how I wanted her to come in. She's on her back. She's completely off the ground. She did not make contact to the ground until after the landing was over. And then I sat up, and we kind of put her down on the ground. We unclipped her. They had champagne waiting for her. The entire (laughs) staff, say 70% of the staff, about 50, 60 people that she had spent the week talking to about how excited she was to skydive, the staff is there. They're all cheering her on. They're playing Highway to the Danger Zone because it's the only (laughs) aviation song they have in their iPod. And 
I'll never forget, we, we cheersed, we hugged, and then I stepped back and just kind of gestured for her to go walk to the, her crowd. And they erupted as she was walking over to them. And I, I dare say we made her year, if not a life experience, where she was celebrated. She was her extraordinary feat of courage at that age. And to be able to do what she did so successfully... Then they made a, a dinner for her where they invited her. To, they made a, like, even in Antarctica, you can have a beautiful five-star meal because the chefs are amazing. They had this private dinner for her and her team and everything that gave her a, a plaque that she was the first tandem skydiver in Antarctica. I mean, it was just this amazing, amazing experience. And this woman's life has changed forever now. And um, I got to play a small part in that. And to share that with her was just extraordinary. Like, I'm, you know, thinking about it now, I'm getting choked up. I mean, what, what a lucky lineup for her, though. Because, I mean, I love to tan like hearing you describe your passion for her experience. I really do love that. I'm not a tandem instructor, but that's the one part that I come back to with jealousy of like, man, I'm I'm so, I'm so jealous that tandem instructors get to be there for that moment. And although I've been, you know, the person to stare into the eyes of many first time tan tandem students shooting video, I've never been there when the when the parachute opens. And the way you talk about it is. And other other passionate tandem instructors is the one thing that makes me think like God maybe maybe I should do it maybe I should get that tandem ready. I uh, will never talk him into it. He can't reach the toggles. <laughs> but oh, <laughs> uh, one of my favorite parts of that story really kind of goes back to what Nick said is all these expeditions you do and we've known each other for years now. It's very easy for you to be. And before I go too far, if you're listening to this, he is not, Tom is not the person I'm about to describe. The glory hound, the glory hog, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And there's no doubt internally you do celebrate the things you've accomplished. But it seems to me in the time, and this story just absolutely personifies, you celebrate the accomplishments you help others achieve. And I love how important other people's success is to you. And I love how you share that story. It's so about, I'm, I'm not even going to try to butcher her name for us. What was her name again? Hortensia. Hortensia. Yeah. Uh, I, I just love that passion. And, and I think uh, we all share that same passion of people's success. And, and I love how you share that. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, dude, it's... Uh, but even, even your humility of you played this small part, like you probably played a huge part in that lady's experience. And I'm sure she thinks about you with the same, you know, the same passion and appreciation that you think about her. And I think that's great. Well, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. One of the things you mentioned is you're ready to dig your heels in because you don't know the depth of the snow. And I was, I, 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 there's so many questions I wanted to ask you today in your stories, and you do such a good job of answering my questions before, like, you, like you're reading my mind. Have you landed in the snow, DJ? Uh, yes, I have in Indiana, but we knew how deep the snow was before we jumped because it's, it's winter. We know where we're getting to. Um, do you, like, how often do you know what it's like? Is it slippery? Do you hit ice patches? So that's probably a better way to frame the, the statement. Oh, we knew the depth of the snow because obviously we walked the landing area and it was hard-packed snow. But what I don't always know with firm uh, understanding is when I'm coming in at 30 miles an hour, when I'm planing out the canopy, my speed, my weight how deep am I going to go into that snow based on what the conditions that landing is presenting to me? Now, I know we're not going to end up waist deep in snow, but I don't necessarily know that moment of touchdown, what kind of give is the ground going to give me? You know, if, it, if I try to put my heels in too hard and I get no give, is that going to potentially cause me to, you know, abruptly stop or create some kind of deep impression into the snow? 
or am I going to be able to just gently put the backs of my heels down and allow them to slide out in front of me? And just kind of like gauging that um, how much pressure to put on my heels of my feet as I'm coming in is kind of the decision that I'm making at that point with her. And the reality is I possibly could have stood the landing up with her, you know, based on the conditions, based on my experience level. And obviously, I think as skydivers, in, in the terms of tandem skydiving, the, the stand-up landing is always the one that's considered to be, you know, hey, are we going to stand our landing up? Hey, are we going to stand our landing up? People are always asking that because mm-hmm. that's the rock star hero landing. But in some conditions, it's not the most ideal situation. Am I, am I current enough? Am I consistent enough? Am I skilled enough to be able to come in on a no-win situation, keep us both up off the ground and stand her up? Possibly. But why add that to the situation? The, the number one concern I have is her safety in putting her back down on the ground in exactly the condition I found her. And for me, my experience with older passengers, not just myself, but in looking at other instructors' experiences, not being able to pick their feet up is huge. Is, is a big possibility at that age and at that um, environment. So risk mitigation. I would have loved to have swooped in, you know, for lack of a better word, I would have loved to have come in across the ground and um, and kept it off the ground and stood her up and walked her off and said, yeah, here we go. We're awesome, you know. But it wasn't in her best interest at that point in, in my decision. And again, I'm looking at it from, I'm on one of the most remote locations on earth. Yeah. There is no, we have doctors and they, they can do surgeries there. They can take out appendixes and stuff if they have to. But I'm in a remote location that does not have access to immediate medical care. That is one of the risks that we take when we do these sorts of expeditions. Mm-hmm. So I want to give her the absolute best chance for 100%. If anything's going to happen, it's going to happen to me and not her. And that was my mindset, you know. And, and yeah. that's just so that, and I knew, I knew from the moment I made the decision at 1,000 feet, that was the turn to make, that was the landing to take. And... It just made me so happy to see her feet three feet off the ground <laughs> when we were when we finally you know came to rest, that I made the right decision and she was thrilled with it. I wonder, and I'm going to make two comments before I let you answer. Uh, it, subconsciously, is there also that decision to say this is an extremely high profile? It is the first tandem student yep. that we've taken. And I know I used to fly a lot of RC airplanes, and they talk about in RC plane shows, if we're, we're doing any air show kind of thing, like only fly at 80% of your capacity in front of a crowd. If you're flying 100%, you're not in a crowd because there's other dangers of the crowd. There's other dangers of situations. And you don't want to damage a person, a plane, a reputation. And in this case, I, I will often wonder when you're doing these extraordinary skydives, because they are absolutely that. Are you considering that? And I want jumpers to hear that answer, too, because, man, we always tend to, as a community, push the absolute limit when we're under a microscope where you say, no, I'm going to work within a smart limit. I want you kind of address that. And before you address that, I'm going to mention people always ask, why don't we do more morning shows? Don't let me drink more than one cup of coffee tomorrow morning. I'll be right back. You go and pee again. All right, cool. (laughs) I I only enjoy this because it gives me the opportunity to make fun of you for for being an old man. Makes me feel younger. (laughs) So how many tandems did you get to do in Antarctica? So on this trip, I made uh, three tandem jumps. Okay. How, how much, uh, I mean, how, how, how long are you there for a trip where you make three tandem jumps? Eight days. Okay, cool. So there's far more, uh, far more preparation. And uh, what, what else do you fill the time with in those eight days? Rest. 
it's actually at this point now it's one of the most rewarding things for me to be able to go there for eight days there's no wi-fi in an absolute emergency i can send an email home someone can send an email back to me we do have sat phones there uh, iridium sat phones where it's i think $50 for a card and you get X number of minutes for it. So every two or three days, I'll call Julie, I'll call my mom and just check in and say, hey, we're still here, we're still doing good, you know, because you get, you're off the map for eight days, people start to worry about you, you know, and so I'll do minimal communication in that regard, but there's no Wi-Fi, there's no sending 100 emails, there's no phone calls, your iPhones don't work down there. So to be able to unplug for a week and rest in between all the chaos of the other 51 weeks a year of my life to travel and, and accomplish things in terms of um, programs and, and trips, all the stuff that I want to do with my life, it's exhausting. And it, it does take its toll. Um, I get tired and sleepy and just like anybody else. And so to have that one week to check out, and my, my, it's now my second time doing this, my, um, my process is the day before I leave, I try to answer every email possible knowing that I'm going to have 100 emails when I get back, mm -hmm. but I don't have to worry about it while I'm gone. And then when I come back, there's, you know, I, I step right back into 100, 200, 300 emails, but I'm prepared for it because I've had eight days to eat and sleep and skydive and mm -hmm. nothing else. So uh, when I just wondered if you'd elaborate on what resting looks like to you. What, do, you do you read, you write, you exercise, you just you meditate? A little bit of everything. So mostly sleeping, I won't lie. I'd like to be more um, deeper than that, but... We have these clamshell tents that are about 65 degrees because the sun never goes down. So in big sleeping bags, hot water bottles, and I'll sleep. So my normal day will look like this. I'll get up at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. We assess whether or not we're going to have skydiving that day. We have a, an operations meeting with the, um, with the air boss and the, the, the overall manager, the operations manager of the base. And then we go have breakfast. And if there's no skydiving that day after breakfast, I'll go back to my tent and I'll sleep for two hours. And I'll wake up around noon. Time for lunch. I'll go back to the, the food tent. And the food is some of the best food I've ever had on any expedition. These chefs are extraordinary. I'll eat lunch. I'll go back to my tent and I'll go back to sleep. And I'll sleep till dinner. And then I'll wake up around dinner. Time for dinner. Go have dinner. And thinking about wanting to go back to sleep, I won't. I'll go into, they have like a library tent. I'll go into the library tent. I'll read, um, I'm currently, I think I just started reading Elon Musk's biography was the, the last book that I started. And so I'm still trying to get through that. The one by schedule. Ashley? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember. Vance, maybe? The Unauthorized Biography or whatever that it was. That she got last minute. That was, yeah. It's an epic book. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've listened yeah, to I've, it. Yeah, I've got it on my, yeah. on the Audible, yeah. So read, um... I spent most of my downtime working on cleaning up my hard drives, cleaning up my laptop, and working on my 2020. DJ, this is probably going to be a surprise to you. I just now have a 2020 version of the examiner manual for tandems, which is about 175 pages long. Did you know how old my examiner manual? 12 or 13, yeah. yeah. Right? If it ain't broke. <laughs> Man, I, uh, anyways, I'm going to yep. keep going to that story. So 175 <laughs> pages of writing and editing. And so I love to write. And that was probably where I spent, to answer the question, where I spent most of my downtime was writing. And um, I came back excited, invigorated, all the th updates that, to the manual that I was waiting years to do and all the things that I wanted to integrate. Uh, I put all that stuff in that one week time period to get done. Do you feel different coming back to normal life after an expedition like that? 
Does the sun seem brighter? Does the AC seem just a little bit sweeter? The one thing that's challenging is not sleeping in the dark. And they give you iPads, you know, they'll cover your eyes oh, up. Oh, yeah, because it's light the whole but time. But it doesn't really help. Because if you've ever tried to sleep with something pressing against your eyeballs, it's just not very comfortable. And you can do it. So normally what I'll do is I'll just take a couple of buffs and I'll just, you know, lay them across my eyes as opposed to putting the um, the... the thing on that's kind of like a, a bandana that covers your eyes. I just lay there with it, cover my face. Um, and I'm sorry, I just, oh, I, I just talked <laughs> myself in a corner. What is it like coming <laughs> off? So coming off, when we get back to Chile, the sun's, it goes beyond the horizon, but it never gets dark. So basically two weeks of not seeing darkness, that actually has a bit of a mental uh, drain on you. Mm-hmm. So when that first night of dark sleep when I get back to Florida is just fantastic. And that's wow. what I look forward to when I get back. And Julie. Thanks, DJ. I, do you want to hand me the shovel? Uh, <laughs> not, a no. yeah, not a problem. Thanks, no. for, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> yeah. What a buddy. <laughs> yes, looking forward to getting back to Florida and seeing Julie in the dark. No, yeah. that's the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> Julie and the dark. You know what I'm Sorry, oh, babe. man. Uh, Nick, you actually sleep with a mask. Was that you who was telling me that recently? No. Uh, Sam slept with a mask. My girlfriend was, uh, she's a nurse. She was a uh, night shift nurse for quite a number of years. So she she used to do a, an eye mask. Mm-hmm. But I, maybe we talked about earplugs and my inability to sleep with without earplugs. We have talked about that's, that. That's probably where that comes from. But I can't, I can't do an eye mask. I can't either. I have a few friends who can do it like it's not a problem. They think I'm crazy for not being able to sleep with an eye mask. And to hear both of you say that, I'm either not crazy or I'm just as crazy as you two, and I I will accept that. I would be gladly in your company. Have you heard of the book, uh, Why Do We Sleep? No. I'm listening to it right now. I probably, uh, or Justin might beat me to the name of the author. But uh, there are even, uh, you know, photosensitive parts of of your skin. So even though you're covering your eyes of what we perceive the light or dark is, even if you're in the light with your eyeballs covered, it still affects your body's ability to, to shut down all the way. Human body is just an, an amazing, amazing thing, man. So I, I will apologize. I'm just catching up. So we're talking about coming back to civilization. Man, that coffee. That coffee just goes through me in the morning. <laughs> um, Matthew yeah. Walker. Was that the one? The author? Say it again. Matthew yeah, Walker. Yeah, that's him. Okay. Um, how many uh, trips have you done to Antarctica now? Uh, two. I've been there twice. And at this point, tandem skydiving's happened. Mm-hmm. Solo skydiving's only happened because of videographers? No, there's, there was actually there was a, a lot of solo skydiving before we got down there. Okay. So for sure, we're not the ones that created the idea of skydiving down there. That's not, you know, that never been the case in terms of sport jumpers. The er, first skydiving that I'm aware of in Antarctica was back in the late 1990s. I want to say 1996, 1997, and it might have been earlier than that, but there was actually a tragic accident that occurred in Antarctica. Uh, There were a four-way had gotten out of a twin otter, and three of the four unfortunately perished. They did not have ADs in their systems. There was um, Michael Kearns is actually an author. Uh, he's living in Arizona, skydiver, author from Australia, and he's actually written about this situation. He was there during this expedition. So if anybody, again, is interested in getting more historical information, um, researching him, Googling that, that uh, you'll get more of a background on it. But the short version is hypoxia, no... Um, no ADs, and then the whiteout conditions. Anyone that's ever jumped in the desert can uh, uh, equate to this. If you jumped in a large enough desert, 12,000 feet doesn't look much different than 1,200 feet at altitude because it's all just one beige blur. 
the snow does exactly the same thing. And then if you're hypoxic on top of that, and at the time, AADs weren't the standard they are today. So this was a horrific accident that occurred. Three people died, and this was actually at the South Pole. And I was speaking to one of the owners of the company about this very incident while we were down there, and he had said he'd gotten a phone call from the the base, the Union Glacier Camp, about the accident. I, I believe it was Christmas morning it happened. It was uh, just a horrific experience. And that basically showed them at the time that skydiving wasn't a sustainable project. And all they were really doing was providing air support for it. There was no skydiving operations down there uh, to speak of. In many expeditions, when you want to go somewhere and do something cool, you just find a local air supply, find a local air, uh, aircraft supporter that will provide you the jump aircraft, provide you the pilot, find out if they're trained. If not, get them training, make sure the plane is uh, in appropriate condition. And that's how a lot of these expeditions happen. And sa similar to Antarctica, they had the aircraft, they had the pilots, they had the ability to do it. This accident happens, and then skydiving is basically, and understandably so, frowned upon. They're not interested in it anymore. It's not a part of their menu option of, of what they offer people. It never was. And all it did was uh, obviously ultimately result in the death of three people. And then the negative fallout within the community in Antarctica, it's very uh, delicate, all the relationships down there between Chile and Antarctica, uh, Chile, uh, Argentina, New Zealand, the United States, all the countries, Russian uh, interest, all the countries that lay claim to this unclaimed land scientific treaties, government treaties, military treaties, whatever whatever other issues there are down there. It just became um, a non-starter at that point. They weren't interested in it. And then I remember four or five years ago seeing something on social media. A group of wingsuiters had gone down to Antarctica. They never ended up getting a chance to jump because the conditions never cooperated, and that's always a possibility. And what I remember seeing in social media was about a dozen wingsuiters wearing their wingsuits with 50-mile-an-hour catabatic winds blowing um, you know, snow on them, and they looked like emperor penguins. They were walking <laughs> around like emperor penguins, and it was, it was awesome. I mean, sorry that they didn't get a chance to jump, but it was an extraordinary uh, thing to see. And then after that, a couple of other expeditions had gone down there, um, solo skydivers. Uh, one of my teammates, Omar Alhejalan, he had brought down a group of eight or ten uh, sport jumpers that had gone and made uh, a bunch of sport jumps there three or four years ago. And that was a success. They went down there specifically without a, um, I don't want to say without an operational, uh, like the, the ALE didn't necessarily know how to integrate skydiving into that at that point because it hadn't been there for so long. And I don't know if that was the first one back in, but they basically laid the framework for Yes, skydiving can exist. And I think that one of the greatest things that Omar's group did in going down there was it gave this group of non-skydivers a current view of performance abilities. You know, these are some of the best skydivers in the world. The equipment advances from the 1990s through 2017 or 18, whenever they went down there, maybe 16. And the overall feasibility that, yes, modern skydiving with AADs, with uh, modern equipment, and the skill sets that we now have today that we didn't have 25 years ago, that now skydiving is potentially sustainable. So that's, uh, I, my hat's off to them. I give them credit. They were basically the ones that showed ALE that this can happen. Then it just became a question of ALE wanted to move forward with, you know, it's a, the group is an international group of um, 
the UK, Australian, US as a whole conglomerate of people. So they set out to create their own program of what they wanted to pursue down there. And how did you get involved with this? So I got involved with it as part of another project. Um, my teammate, Jim, uh, out of Michigan, he's 72 years old right now. I don't want to pre-age him. He's either 72 What's or 70. What's his last name? Uh, Wigginton. Okay. He's either 72 or 73 years old. He is a, a retired Marine CEO of a company for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years or so. He's been working towards building, um, I'm going to say this correctly, he has been on a awareness campaign for a thyroid cancer research fund that unfortunately his wife had um, passed in 2012 or 13 from thyroid cancer. And as a result of that, he set out to create a research foundation through the University of Michigan. And the goal was to reach a $10 million uh, endowment. And with $10 million, the two scientists that are actively pursuing quality of life research for thyroid cancer um, patients that are dealing with it in a non-curable fashion to extend their quality of life from right now it's well, at the time it was 12 to 18 months and the goal was to increase the quality of life to four to five years uh, and this is a very small population of people thyroid cancer is 95 percent curable when they catch it through biopsy but for that five percent that they don't catch the false negative if they biopsy the wrong area. Once it's metastasized, if that's the right word, as it's spread through the body, then it's effectively uncurable. But the goal is to extend the quality of life for that small portion of people. Because to that small portion, while they're a small population of individuals, to them it's entirely critical that they need the same research and representation as other cancer foundations. And so he set up this thyroid cancer fund he personally donated uh, $6 million to it, and the goal was to raise the other $4 million through um, awareness programs such as this project. And so that's why you'll see in a lot of our, our media footage, with the exception of Antarctica because it was so cold, we're actually jumping with University of Michigan logos on our, our liquid sky suits that we had made. And the University of Michigan gave us permission to use their, their logo on these uh, suits for this specific project. So I want to say today we're up to about $8.5 million in the fund and once it hits 10 million it'll be self-sustaining for all time the two doctors plus all of their research costs will all be covered in perpetuity for you know given the the trust's uh, earnings every year and it will live on like that forever so he did that in honor of his wife uh, Punya that was her her nickname Punya Wigginton so it's the Punya thyroid Cancer Research Foundation is what Jim had created. And that's ultimately what's driven us around the world. Uh, the seven continents, the first time we went there was for this seven continents, seven tandem jumps, and seven months was the time frame we gave ourselves. We wanted to hold ourselves accountable to some time frame. And again, that uh, idea of that time frame, I give credit to um, to Omar and another one of his teammates, who I apologize, the name escapes me for them at the moment, but they were working on a seven-day project, 777, seven skydives, seven continents, seven days. It just became logistically difficult at that time period to get in and out of Antarctica in less than a day. It's almost impossible. So that kind of stalled that project at the time. But it kind of inspired us to say, well, seven months is a reasonable time frame to get on all seven continents. I still have a job to do here with UPT. He's still running his company, but it does hold us accountable to this project. So seven continents, seven tandem jumps, seven months. We finished that in Australia uh, last May, I think, 
last March or last May. So that's what led to all of this uh, around the world tandem. That's what started the whole project. And in doing it, we've now created as an offshoot of this to continue with the social awareness of what we're doing, bringing more people back to these locations. And we're going to continue, Paul Henry and I are going to continue to bring people around the world and make tandem jumps in these extraordinary places. The last show we talked about what would it take the average person to go skydive at Everest. Uh, the obvious question becomes, as a sport jumper, if I wanted to go to skydive in Antarctica, what would it take me to do? What, so how would I do this? If you wanted to make a sport skydive in Antarctica, you can contact Antarctic Logistics Expedition directly. Uh, you can contact me if you're here in the U.S. You can contact Paul Henry in France. You can contact uh, Omar in Dubai. You can contact uh, Glenn Singleman in Australia. Ultimately, it's all going to get filtered back to Antarctic Logistics Expedition, and they're headquartered out of Utah, Salt Lake City. And their their marketing team, their logistics team, will then take you through the whole process of what you need to have with you, what you need, where to be, how much it costs, all that stuff. And in, in terms of how they manage the process, it's one of the most well-run organizations I've ever seen or ever had the privilege to work with. I think that's a huge statement because we both know a few different companies that you've worked for who are very tight ships and very well-run organizations. Do you have a uh, approximate price it would cost the average person to go do a jump? I mean, you said $30,000 ticket just to get there. Well, so the thir- that was... The $30,000 cost is your round-trip exposure to get to Antarctica. And it could be 32000 It could be twenty-nine. It yeah. hover, hovers around the 30000 mark. And that includes your eight days on the glacier, includes two skydives, and your whole package of a skydiver is to fly down there to uh, from Chile. You have to get yourself to Punta Arenas, Chile, which is pretty easy. And then they will fly you on the Aleutian to Antarctica. You'll spend your eight days there. If your weather doesn't cooperate and you can't jump, you are welcome to stay as long as needed to get the jumps done. So the first year we were there, we were there, I think, 12 days when we should have only been there seven, but five more days in Antarctica, no one was complaining about it. Super cool. And then once your two jumps are done, back on the Aleutian on the next available flight out, and they bring you back to to Chile, and then at that point you're on your own to get back from Chile. It's... uh it's an extraordinary opportunity, and, and if anybody, I, I know we have people listening who are going to ask the same questions about the Everest expedition. I'll just point you guys back to not having us repeat ourselves. Go to episode 32, download it, listen to it. It's got a lot of great information. Some of the things you mentioned, like uh, Deepak, I actually know that name. We said, yeah. Deepak, I'm like, I remember that guy. And then yep. the lower uh, DZ, um, Pen- Pokara. P- Pokara, yeah. Uh, it, it, he has a lot of that information there, and definitely check it out. But one of my favorite parts of all of these trips and all of these stories that you tell, and, and back to you and I have gotten a fair amount of time together talking trash, um, is not the experience. You, you never seem to take away nearly as much from the physical experience and the geographical experience as you always seem to take away from the personal experiences, the people you meet. You have... Man, I, I wish I could say this to all my friends, but you have grown tremendously as a human being in the time I've known you. Oh, thank you. Oh, dude, you're welcome, man. <laughs> thank no, you. No, you, you were a good guy when I first met you. You're, you're a solid man. So, yeah. you know, sometimes you say that it's because the man needed to grow. I don't think you needed that. Um, but, like, how do you keep that in perspective? How do you keep that growth? What, what, what's your mindset? Well, going back to, I think, what I said earlier today, or maybe it was the other episode, that my greatest joy in what we do is being able to share with other people. And Hortensia is a tandem uh, client that I work with. 
or a fun jumper that I'm friends with, uh, my friends Chris and Nyla, we brought them down to Antarctica with us this year so that they could um, skydive together in Antarctica. That was just extraordinary opportunity to share that with other friends. So what motivates me is to, and I think I said this last time, my, my, my failure of a life would be to arrive at the end of it and have been privileged to have experienced all these great opportunities and not have shared them with the people I care about. And perfect example of this uh, goal of mine is always been to share my life and try to make other people's lives better so that at the end of my life, when I do look back on it, I can say not just that I was able to work hard and experience certain things, but that others benefited from that hard work, others benefited from that experience. And I just ran a eight-person examiner course last week. Uh, it was fried. I had another six or seven uh, current examiners who I invited to join down. So we had a big group of people. And it's Thursday night. The course should have been done. I should have just said, bye, guys. It was nice to see you. But that's not how I operate. I was like, you know what? What more can I do to share this experience? Well, you know what? These people that have come from all over the world, none of them have been to New Smyrna Beach and have seen the Flagler Tavern outdoor deck. You know, they have a little speakeasy up there. So I was like, guys, we got to go have uh, dinner together. You know, you don't have to come, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reserve a table for 16, and here's the address. We'll see you at 730. I should have gone home and went to bed. I was that tired. It was just a wreck. But there was still more sharing to be done. So everybody came, and we had people. We had Australia represented. We had Serbia represented. We had... Canada represented, we had the U.S. represented, South Africa represented, we had all these people from different parts of the world all breaking bread together and, and celebrating the experience that we just had together. And what this ties into, to, to wrap this up, I sent uh, Mark Prokos a text message, and I was like, hey, Mark's my boss, general manager of UPT, and I said, hey, Mark, um, we're meeting at the Flagler Tavern, you know, please, you and Candy, you're welcome to come out and see the, the team and hang out with us, and, and Julie was with us as well, and so... I didn't think they were going to come because Candy was working late at Vigil. But sure enough, I got a text message from um, Mark. He said, yeah, we're on our way. We'll be there at 9.30. So Mark and Candy and Julie and I and everybody, we sat and we had a great dinner together. We drank, we ate, we talked, we told stories. And as the night was wrapping up, it's inevitable that Nepal or Everest is going to come up in a conversation just based on my, my past and my history with it. And I looked around and my one of my best friends in the sport, Noah Watts, uh, is a member of the U.S. Army parachute team. We brought him out there a few years ago. Julie, I had wanted to share that with her for seven plus years, and it worked out that my schedule was going to allow her to come out the prior year. So I brought her out. We trekked the Himalaya together and had this most amazing experience together up there sharing that experience. And Mark and Candy, had I had brought them out to Nepal two years prior to that. And here I am in a group of like, at this point, there was nine of us standing around talking, and I'm like thinking to myself, you went to Nepal, you went to Nepal, you went to Nepal, you went to Nepal, and you went to Nepal. All because I had made the effort to share my life with these people that I care about tremendously. Some I had known for a long time, some I hadn't known as long, but my goal was to share my life with these people that I care about. So that was a really cool thing. Thursday night, it's Flagler Tavern, uh, Flagler Ave, New Smyrna Beach, and I'm looking at over half the people I'm standing around I had shared that experience with and immeasurably improved their lives in that capacity. Everyone that comes back says, I never thought it would be what it was. Um, this past trip, um, Alan Pixie from the UK, we brought them out to Nepal and they were part of the program as well. So we got to share that with other friends and coworkers and 
we've got some projects that we're working on for November of this year to, to share that as well. So that's my greatest uh, driving factor in all of this. And it's why I love to come talk about it here, even if it's just hearing a story about how someone else's life has been changed as a result of something that's been done as a collective. That's why I do what I do, trying to share my world to people and people share their worlds with me. They have Jim, my teammate, he shared his world with me. And as a result, he and I and, and PH, the three of us have traveled the world together. So it's paying it forward, making sure that I don't just kind of keep it all to myself. It's never been my, my driving factor in all this. And ultimately, the last jump we did for that 777 project, we were in Australia. And we could have just gone to Australia and jumped anywhere. And all the locations are beautiful. All the people that I work with out there are, are extraordinary. But I wanted to do something really special. And so I, 10 years earlier, my friends in Australia had done something really special for me. They dropped us on a jump in Whitehaven Beach, only accessible by boat or by plane. And so I thought, you know what? I'd like to take Jim on a tandem jump there. Jump on this beach that probably less than 100 people have ever jumped on. And let's see if I can make it happen. So I called the APF, talked about getting my Australian Parachute Federation tandem rating. They said, what could we do to help? Um, called Phil Onus down at Sydney Skydivers in Picton, and Phil is one of the most accomplished skydivers on the planet. And he says, what can I do to help? So I go down to the drop zone. He gets me sorted out. I call my friends uh, up in the Great Barrier Reef area and say, I need an airplane. What can we do to help? So they created this whole, like they shared their life with me. Every one of them did exactly what I just described was my goal in life, was to share their life with me. They didn't need to do it. Uh, they didn't charge us any crazy fees. They said, just tell us what you need. We'll, we'll take care of it for you. And so all of that being said, then I said to Julie, I was like, look, we're going to Australia. We're going to go do the skydive. And uh, while we're there, we're like 30 minutes from the Great Barrier Reef. We should probably go snorkel the Great Barrier Reef together. Like, that would be kind of cool. Like, I've never done that before in all my trips to Australia. Never been to the Barrier Reef. And it was something that I was excited about outside of skydiving. So we all go down there together as this collective group of, of mayhem and chaos. All the team members, all the people we're working with. And it comes off magically. It comes off magically. And we get the jump done for Jim. It's the last of our jumps. We're celebrating it. And then everybody starts to depart. And so it, Paul Henry, Julie, and I, the three of us, we were the last ones left on the island. Uh, we jumped into a Eurocopter H-130, and we flew like rock stars out to the Great Barrier Reef. I just looked at the video a couple days ago. You land on a platform, and you're just floating in the water. They land two helicopters on the platform. They get a little tender boat to come over and pick you up, and they bring you back to this larger boat where all the snorkeling and all the uh, scuba diving is going on. And Sure enough, we put our snorkels and stuff on, and we jump on the water, and Julie and I, just out of just random happenstance, we just started holding hands just so we knew where each other was, and we snorkeled the Great Barrier Reef together for like an hour and a half, just up one side of it, down the other. Now, Julie's only got two skydives, two tandem jumps. I made, took her on a jump in Finland and a jump in Ireland. Not really excited about skydiving on a personal level, but knows that it's what I'm passionate about. And I thought this was the culmination of my life. It, it shared my personal relationship with her, with my skydiving relationship with my friends, and my international group of teammates that I work with that have shared their lives with me. All of it kind of came together. And in that one moment underwater, I'm just pedaling along, we're, we're snorkeling. I'm like, 
I'm so blessed to do what I do. Like here we are in, in Australia, 30 different people had to coordinate their schedules, their time, including myself and, and everyone involved. And we've finished it, it's over. <sighs> what's next? You know, now what's the next project? And then Antarctica became the next project we're on. But that one moment sharing it with her and Paul Henry being there, you know, another uh, lifelong friend that we've known forever, it was just a great exposure for us to be able to, um, to use skydiving as the platform for something greater than what we were, if that makes sense. Like it, the promotion of the Thyroid Cancer Research Foundation is what brought us all there. It brought all these international people together, exposed them to what we were doing, and they in turn took care of us. And um, yeah, I'll be forever grateful for that moment. I'll look back on that one as one of the, the most pure moments of my life. I think the, the two of you share a definitive passion for sharing things with, with others. And I, I feel like more, more of the people that I respect and idolize have, this, have the same passion. And uh, for you guys, it's really great. It's just great to know people who not only have the, the passion to share, you know, to be interested in the success of others, but the uh, ability to share it to, to the extent that, that both of you do. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I appreciate it. I, uh, I, I, I'm sure you see as you're telling your stories the smirks and smiles on my face because... I, as much as I enjoy your stories, I enjoy your stories of others. I enjoy like how you're sharing this with Julie and how Julie has no real care about skydiving, but she's so passionate about you. And the passion of others, once again, yeah. is what trumps it. And I know a lot of people will tell me, and I've actually heard people say this of you, well, of course the AP Health helped help them. He's Tom Noonan, the director of TAMP. No, they did not help you because of your position, although it may help with the contact information. It's your approach. It's the way you talk to people. It's the way you want to help everybody. It makes them want to help you. So, I mean, I really believe anybody who wants to help people can get all the help they want. Don't, don't think that Tom is special. Um, don't think that Tom has special access to anything. You've worked extremely hard. Again, I've known you for a while now, and I know uh, you haven't always had access to these things, and you've hustled. You've, you've hustled hard. You joked around about the tandem examiner manual, and Man, that is a burden uh, in the things you do. So you, you hustle. But one of the things, and thank you, Nick, for those kind words. One of the things I, I want to kind of get back to is how this has affected your life. In knowing you, I definitively see changes in you. I, I wish we could spend more time geographically located together. Unfortunately for us, we do enough phone calls and yeah. emails. I, it's, it's, I, I say that for those who don't understand. Um, Tom and I do a lot of problem solving together, exam or tandem instructor issues, examiner issues, whatever. So unfortunately, a lot of our interactions are business. But through social media and through those calls, every single time you come back home from one of these massive events, you are always changed in some way. And, and that might impress me the first time you came back from Everest. But every time you come back from Everest, there's an evolution of Tom Noonan. And, and I... I it, it, dude, it's go back and look at your <laughs> timeline on Facebook, and you'll see it yourself. It, it is definitively there. How do you do that? How do you allow yourself to constantly evolve as a human being? Never really thought about it in that context. I do a lot of assessment, a lot of self-assessment. Rob Laidlaw, I could actually um, credit him to a lot of this in terms of mentorship over the years. Goal setting, and not just goals of I want to earn this rating. I want to make this jump. But goal settings of where do you want to be in your life, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, that kind of thing. So I, I do assess often the path or trajectory that I'm on. And 
hugely flawed <laughs> still to this day. And I try to work on one flaw at a time, I guess, or try to improve one process at a time. What can I do to make an improvement in someone else's life? And also, to be fair, what improvements can I make in my own life, too, at that same point in time? Because I don't, I don't want to look back and wish I had done something or, or recognized I could have done something that I failed to do because I hadn't properly planned for it. And as we, as we get older, someday you'll get there. Hey, I'm, I'm on my way. As You're only get, 10 years behind us. As How we get older, 34. Okay. we realize that uh, time is the one thing money can't provide. It's the one asset, the one thing that is... Um, the unreplaceable resource. Thank you, the unreplaceable resource. And so I just, I do a lot of self-evaluations. I spend a lot of time on airplanes, so I have a lot of time to sit and think and just... I have notebook upon notebook upon notebook of just notes that I carry with me and things that I want to accomplish for the next week or the next good idea or the next bad idea and scratch that one off, you know, and that kind of thing. So I just am always just trying to be a better me. And like I said, hugely flawed, I think like most people perceive of themselves and just try to pick on one flaw to improve each time I, I go somewhere or do something or where do I see myself six months from now or a year from now. In failure of improving those flaws, because my gosh, I, it's, we're all preaching to the choir in this case, because if you're not aware that you're failing at your flaws, well, yeah, there's our friends out there like that. You should be more aware. When you become aware that I am currently failing at a goal I have with improving a flaw, where does your mindset go? What caused the, like, what's the root cause of the failure? What in my programming has failed and what do I need to reprogram? And I can't recall what podcast or what motivational video I saw that on, but somewhere along the lines, I was taught or trained to work backwards from problems. And actually, you know what, I think it was when I was getting my shoulder uh, rehabbed that if the problem was here, that it started up here. If the problem was here, it started up, you know, further up. There's always prior to where the problem is, there's something above that or ahead of that that led to that problem. Don't necessarily look to fix the problem. Look to fix what it was upstream of the problem, whether it's personal, physical, emotional, whatever it is. Fix that and that will alleviate the problem below it. Because otherwise, if you just fix the problem below it, but don't fix the contributing core factor of it, that problem, even though it might be fixed on the short term, will continue to resurface itself again and again, unless you get to like the core underlying cause of it. Sorry, I'm not being an asshole. I don't take notes very often. <laughs> but when someone says something that I really connect to, something that I want to remember, I'm just taking some notes on my phone. Oh, thank you. Hey, uh, you jumped in a lot of places. Yes. Uh, a lot of places that are hard to get. Mm -hmm. So if, if you had, uh, what's I just want to know the most beautiful place you've jumped. The, the view that you looked down and said, man, more, more people need to see this one right here. That's an impossible question to answer because <laughs> under their own contexts, there's so many beautiful places in the world. But I'll, if I can give you multiple answers. Sure, I'd take a top three. I'd even take so, a top five. Okay, I would have to say from a awe of mankind's accomplishments. The Palm Jumeirah, to me, is one of the most stunning things to look down on in free fall. The idea that someone could have that idea and see, see it through. I think that is just um, a modern example of the abilities of the human spirit. Just to help people out, that's the Palm Islands is yep. commonly called. It's, it's, yeah, it's right over your left shoulder there. Yep. Oh, yeah, you've both jumped there. And go back 15,000 years prior, 
the pyramids, uh, getting out over the pyramid, being able to be in free fall over this mystery of the ancient world, and then to be able to land and go climb up inside it, and to be in that chamber that the sun hasn't seen that chamber in 5,000 years. And whether it was built 5,000 years ago or 15,000 years ago or 40,000 years ago, that's a, a open to debate. But just to be around that, the awe of the, the world. I can remember at the, at the end of the trip, sitting at night, with the, they light the pyramids up, and you can still see the night sky above it. I'm thinking, I'm looking at something that people looked at for over 5,000 years at, at, at a minimum. And to be that close to it is just unbelievable. From a natural awe, of course, Mount Everest and the Himalaya is got to be one of the most extraordinary visions on Earth. The rugged awe power of that environment is humbling. It's spiritually fulfilling. Also, the same type of awe, if you will, from Whitehaven Beach, uh, Oceana, to be off of the coast of Australia and see the Great Barrier Reef in freefall, to see this one natural sanded beach that doesn't, it shouldn't be there based on how the rest of the coastline for a thousand miles looks. It's just the way that the, the sand comes up off the, the, the tides and the currents. It looks like something out of the Bahamas, blue water and beautiful white sands only in this one little spot. Um, and it looks like something out of, it was like landing in Jurassic Park. That's how I would describe landing at Whitehaven Beach. It felt like we were landing in the Jurassic Park, being transported back a million years ago to the land of the dinosaurs. So I think those four in general would be my four most visual. The North Pole and Antarctica, there's so much going on in the brain, so much adrenaline, so much uh, do it right. You have to focus on the job at hand, that there's very little time in those environments to, to kind of take in the, the sights. But Antarctica, because of the topography similar to the Himalaya, was beautiful. North Pole was it was the North Pole, but it was flat and white. There was no topography, so that was um, that wasn't. I wouldn't say one of the most beautiful jumps I've ever made. Although it is a jump worth making for everyone out there, with that possibility. And I'll wrap it up with Kilkenny, Ireland. Um, my friends out in Skydive Ireland, making a sunset skydive in Ireland, you will see all forty-seven shades of green, or all forty-three shades of green that Ireland has to offer, and you're in a a jumping out over a castle that's 2,000 years old or however long. I mean, everything comes together at Skydive Ireland. My friend Dave out there, he's taken such good care of us. And every jump I've made there, I've made at sunset, like 9.30 at night, because it's the summer and the sun doesn't set till like 11. And the way that the, the setting sun reflects on my homeland, to me, that's been uh, the most beautiful, I think one of the most beautiful memories I have in freefall. Do you have anywhere that you want to add to that list? So what are current plans are for 2020 into 2021 is a similar version of the 777. We haven't released this or anything yet, so it's not an official statement, but we're doing the same thing with the seven summits. And huh. we've got Everest already covered. We've got Mount um, Vincent where we haven't jumped yet, but we're working towards the potential of jumping and landing at the Mount Vincent base camp uh, in Antarctica next year. How high is that one? Uh, you'll have to Google it. My brain is just fried. I can't think of what the, the, the altitude is. We will require oxygen to get out. I think we're, the target exit altitude is 21,000 feet. So we will bring onboard oxygen with us. I want to say it's 16,000 feet or 14, excuse me, but I can't remember. 
Oh, there was a phrase that I wanted to define. 16,066. Hey, I got it right. 16,000. Yeah. You, you talked about catabatic winds a couple of times. Oh, yeah. And I, I was a little lost, so I did look up the uh, the definition. A catabatic wind is the technical name for a drainage wind, a wind that carries high-density air from a higher elevation down a slope under the force of gravity. Such wind, winds are also sometimes called fall winds. Catabatic winds. Yep. So That's that news to me. As the air gets higher, it gets more dense and colder, and basically falls back down the mountain and ends up pushing the air that it's falling into out of its way. A waterfall of air, yeah. an airfall. Yep. So that's the, uh, we're looking at uh, Aconcagua in, uh, if I say that correctly, Aconcagua in uh, Chile, Antarctica. I think they share the, the range there. Um, and of course, the other the summits in, around the world we're working on as well. So that's going to be a long project, labor of love. And a few other cool little projects. My... Um, my teammates down in Chile were working on going to jump Easter Island. Uh, that should hopefully happen at some point in 2020. Uh, I'll take Jim on another tandem jump there. And one of these days, I'm going to grab a sport rig and be able to bring my sport canopy with me as well and make some sport jumps around the world. If you ever need a caddy, somebody to shine your boots and to wash your underwear, I will join you <laughs> happily. If that's <laughs> what it takes. Just I can to do that and shoot video views, just saying. <laughs> well, I don't wear underwear. <laughs> There's only one layer of cotton between me and the world, Jerry, and I'm <laughs> loving it. <laughs> man, I, I really can't thank you enough for being here, man. I, I love sharing your story. I love hearing your stories. Uh, we keep talking about getting back together and doing this again, and we'll get back to it again, I'm sure of it, man. Well, thank you. I'll close with one, I guess, thought or theory on all this, that this past October, my team, we, we've been trying for two years to set a tandem high-altitude record. And we were able to do that in October in Poland with some of my teammates. And this was our third attempt. It's difficult to go above 30,000 feet with aircraft and oxygen, and you really need specific types of oxygen support. And so two failed attempts to set this world record for Jim's uh, foundation. The whole purpose was for the Punya Thyroid Cancer Research Foundation to use this as the crown jewel of the, um, of the awareness campaign that Jim wanted this officially in the record books. By, and by accomplishing it, not just his name, but his wife's name will forever be recorded in Guinness uh, record for all time. So it was really important for us to do this. And we tried two other times with great efforts from other teams and other organizations. We weren't able to do it. And last March, I was out in Poland. I was speaking at the uh, symposium that I had helped the Polish Skydiving Association create, uh, the International Skydiving Symposium in Poland. And Bill and I are actually going out there for the third one next week, so we're gonna, Bill's going to be speaking out there. But last year, I was talking to one of my best friends out there, my friend Maya, and I said, Maya, I've been trying to set this high-altitude world record for two years. And he says, well, look at this. The platform we use is a hot air balloon. We went to 30... 4,000 or 35,000 feet and did three sport jumpers. I said, okay, well, can we do a tandem jump out of it? And he said, sure, why not? He said, he's a, um, he's a retired member of the Polish Grom, the special forces out there. And he, he said, I'll bring my team together and we'll put this, we'll hire the right people for the project and we'll get you guys up there. So I called my teammate Jim and I said, Jim, we're going to Poland. Um, we'll book our tickets for the fall. We're going to go out there, and we will beat the world record. At the time, I think it was 31,900 feet, and we had to reach 34,000 feet, whatever the percentage uh, increase is to qualify for a new record. And we knew we would get minimum 34, but we're going to try to do it as high as possible within the context of safety, obviously. So we went out there in September. We did all the test jumps. We did uh, jumps from 29,000 feet out of a caravan, 
using all the oxygen systems we were going to use. There was a company called Deem uh, Airware that, uh, out of Poland, I believe, that made these beautiful jumpsuits for us for their brutal weather. And our weather window closed in at the end of uh, end of our trip. The jet stream was our only concern because we were jumping out of a balloon. If the jet stream was in the wrong direction, we would have ended up in Russia, which wouldn't have been a bad thing for us. We would have loved the cross country, but it would have been an issue if a skydive that was supposed to take place in Poland ended in Russia. So we had to cancel the actual, we waited three days as long as we could, and then the weather window just collapsed on us. So we had put all this effort and energy together to get this jump done, and then at the same time, unfortunately, my father was sick at the time, and so I had to make a decision, go home, have my shoulder surgery, spend my time with my family, and Maya is an incredibly talented tandem instructor as well who I'd worked with, so we basically said, Maya, will you make the jump? And who, who's going to say no to that, right? So Maya says, okay, I'll, I'll step in and make the jump. So Maya ended up taking Jim in October to 37,359 feet or something. And it's down to the foot based on the, the NASA level of, of data collection, the GPSs that they were using. This was the Polish Grom was so professional. What they did for us is, was even beyond our, our expectations of how you could navigate this process. It was unbelievable. And so Jim sets the record. And I wake up the next morning, I get a text message, we set the record, and I was so relieved and so happy for them that not only did Jim get the opportunity to accomplish this, but accidentally, for lack of a better term, because I hadn't really given it much thought at the time, I was so task-focused on getting it done for him being the third time that on top of his accomplishment, Maya was able to accomplish something extraordinary as well as a result. An unfortunate situation for me turned into a very incredibly fortunate situation for a dear friend of mine who I care about tremendously. And I remember looking back at that going, I'm glad it was him. It would have been another great opportunity for me to share that with Jim, but I was so glad that everything that I had talked about, about sharing with other people, we got to bring someone else into this extraordinary uh, environment. And it brought me to my closing point here is this, is that I didn't realize what we were doing all this time. I wasn't thinking clearly about the big picture view of why are we doing all this. In, in the beginning, it was we're traveling the world, we're doing something good for this project and for this, uh, this thyroid cancer research fund. But it wasn't until they set the record and that Guinness sent us all certificates saying officially amazing and the whole thing that I realized that we had taken skydiving, something that Paul Henry, something that myself, something that Maya, everyone that we've worked with in the last two years, something that we're all passionate about. And Jim, we took skydiving and we used it to make something improved beyond just ourselves and our sport. So this world record that they've created will for all time establish Jim's widow Punya in the record books. And this will be the, this, this was the crowning uh, accomplishment of this awareness campaign. And now the final chapter has been written on this project. And over the next few months, you'll see as we start releasing on social media, the videos and the interviews and the, the true purpose behind all of it. But we took skydiving and used it as a medium to make something else in the world better. And that, like, that was kind of like my wow moment. I hadn't really had time to think about it during the whole process because we were so busy being and doing. And now that it's over, I thought, wow, to be able to use something we care about and something that has tremendous public appeal when done correctly for the better good of something outside the sport. 
that's mind-blowing to me that we had the privilege to do that. Now something, a larger organization that's going to go on for all time and continue to, to research thyroid cancer, skydiving, not me, not PH, not Maya, but our sport, the collective of what we are, that's what brought that to reality. Everybody in Australia and in Chile and in Asia and in, in Europe, all the people we work with, that's what brought this success to us. And so I get chills just thinking about it, that this little sport that we all love and we've sacrificed our lives for is making the world outside of our, our sport in this one capacity, making it better. So what can we do in other areas? That's what I would challenge anybody who's listening to this. If you're still with us two hours and 22 minutes later, what can you use your passion for skydiving for to make the world a better place outside the drop zone on a macro level? What can you do to improve the quality of life of someone or something some area of your life that you can use skydiving as the conduit of awesome to share that story, to share that information. So that's my closing thought on this whole ex exhausting experience. That's my life, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share it with everybody. One of the first times I met you, I heard you say, people like to tell me I'm awesome, and I'm not. I'm a conduit of awesome. It's been a long time since I've heard you say those words. I'm sure you saw me chuckle. Yep. <laughs> but I love the words. It's not about what I do. It's not about who I am. I am a culmination of everybody around me, and what I've done is a culmination of what they've done. I am just a facilitator helping people put it together. And not everybody can say that, but you are one of the greater facilitators I've ever met, brother. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You're, you're very welcome. Mr. P. You're a great facilitator. You're a great storyteller. you got a great beard. Thank you. And you got a great heart underneath that too, man. So well, I appreciate it. So that. thank you for sharing those stories with us. Awesome, guys. Tom Noonan, thank you so much for being here. Guys and gals, thank you for tuning in. Thank you once again to Performance Designs for hosting us, for having the studio set up for us. We uh, cannot thank them enough for this great space and the great time we've had together. And uh, as I took my pee break, a couple of the guys in the office was like, hey, I'm watching right now. I'm listening. So thank you guys so much. We will catch you guys next time.